The Red 78. The most important thing was the intensity and the mentality to go after the game. As a coach, why did he only give away nine penalties this week? Available every Wednesday. Don't miss a moment of action. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mode. All right, it's half past seven. It is Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday. Thursday. Hooray, the week is nearly over. Thursday morning, you're very welcome along to OTBAM. Time is a flat circle, folks. Uh, Shane, how are you? Good morning, Joe. How are things? Very good. Very good, yeah, yeah. And that's into the world that you uh, like to smoke the herb. It's very good. <laughs> Do you know what? I, I bought this. Uh, <laughs> I bought this in uh, Cool Runnings. I've got twice so far, but I actually bought this in Addis Ababa Airport in Ethiopia. Oh, right, a little flex. Yeah, it humble brag. One of those things. You know, when I was climbing Kilimanjaro. You know that, that thing I did. I found the uh, the airport not very welcoming in uh, Ababa. Uh, yeah, I bought coffee beans, and that was it. One of the most bizarre airport experiences. Actually, the most bizarre airport experience I've ever had. Um, Pandemonium, mayhem. Why do you fly? Didn't seem built. What country is Kilimanjaro in? Kilimanjaro is in uh, Tanzania. So we flew, we flew Dublin, Lisbon, Lisbon, Addis Ababa, Addis Ababa to Kilimanjaro International Airport in Tanzania. Okay, so you're just travelling through Addis? Yeah, just travelling through. Um, Yeah, mad, mad scenes in that airport. But um, I just wanted to get something with the Ethiopian colours. The fact that it's the Jamaican colours as well is... uh, Well, they're very, very closely interlinked, yeah. Closely interlinked. But that seems to be getting all the notice, for sure. Cool Runnings references are... Yeah, very good. Okay, right. Um, Keeps it it linked to sport, I guess, Cool Runnings, so... Um, Well, also Ethiopia, home of the world's great runners. Of course, yes. Yeah, yeah, there is that as well, so... Uh, Anyway, I was... uh, We need to talk football, because last night's remarkable scenes at the end of the Champions League games... Yeah, Spurs won, you know, Spurs come back from behind in a game that they're not very good and then they win and it's like Antonio Conte feels this weight of relief because everybody thinks he's no good in the Champions League. Yeah, he goes running down the touchline as well. Like Mourinho-esque, the, the bench empties, there's a lad in jeans and you're like, oh, there's a bit of pitch invasion but it's actually Richarlison who does look like he's, he's a fan who's run on to kind of congratulate and the stewards are like... Uh, uh, it's a bit athletic to be uh, the normal lads who are like drunkenly wandering on it's like okay fair enough Yeah. Um, and then VAR intervenes and so uh, there's like 45 minutes before VAR rules it was farcical well um, <clears throat> I was watching it live you, so you're watching it live I, I, I'm only coming into it this morning and outside I'm uh, talking to Phil Egan Phil goal or no goal and he's like well it's no goal because the rules are the rules so he's pretty black and white about it and then he points me in the direction of a guy called Dale Johnson, at Dale Johnson ESPN, who basically spends all his time... Yeah, um, judging these things. Yeah, or like explaining why VAR was correct or why VAR made the decision they made. Yes. So what was your experience like in real time? Because you're watching on BT, and let's face it, BT football coverage is the most jingoistic yeah. football coverage in the world. <laughs> now, I don't speak Spanish, so when those um, Mexican commentators are going, go, 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 I imagine there's a little bit of jingoism as well. Yeah. And perhaps in, in Argentina sometimes when, when Messi's playing, Messi, 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 you know, perhaps. But I still think BT, even not knowing the languages, I still think BT are like, oh, yeah, we've done it for Blighty. Yeah, I know. That's I, that's what you get when you're watching it. It was uh, it was Jermaine Genus on COCOMS, and, and I, I, I'll be nice about Jermaine. I'm going to see him in London today to interview him. So, um yeah, I think he's fantastic. If you're watching Jermaine, you're a brilliant co-commentator. But I understand what you're saying. Because like, in the audio, it's funny how in 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 the as so I've just watched back the the live scenes on. Yeah. Um, he's clearly saying that goal that ball goes backwards. It has to stand. So there's something in his head that makes him think 
he's like that that's the rule yeah. well, or, well or that he's explaining in the hope that it's you know putting it out there manifesting into the world that this is going to be a goal it's going to stand yeah yeah because there's no, a bit there, I'm saying there's a wrinkle of doubt in his mind but even as soon as the, the so the, the first thing for, I got from watching live was three and a half minutes felt like it just felt like forever and you're thinking this is the longest VAR decision there's ever been Spurs fans are going around they're, they're still hugging and clapping hands and Harry Kane is smiling they all think this is going to be allowed and it's just a, a basic check just in case for anything but um then it's given, and then it pops up the two lines, the red line and the blue line. You're like, it's offside, but how could it be offside? Because he's headed the ball backwards or sidewards, Emerson Royal. It's been deflected forward towards Harry Kane. But then apparently the rule is, if Harry Kane is standing ahead of um, the ball, it doesn't matter if the ball was passed backwards or forwards. Well, I, I understand that. I, I, that, bit, I, that bit's fairly understandable. Sorry, that bit's okay, yeah. yeah like, I, but that seems to be the confusion. It's like the... the uh, why the direction of the ball? And was you, Harry, I thought he was behind the ball. If you're yes. behind the ball, you're onside. But is, according is, to the lines, his right knee seemed to be just ahead of the ball at the at that time. Yeah, I think it, it looks like it's his left knee. And left knee. This one here, the, your man um, Dale Johnson at Dale Johnson ESPN on Twitter has the screen grab. The trouble with the screen grabs is right. Like, is the is the computer so sharp that it knows the precise moment the ball? Is no longer in contact. Like this not, was my argument with my brother last night. No, not a not like a, a scintilla. Not yeah, like how does the computer an electron know? worth of the ball is still touching the forehead of Emerson. Yeah, because that's the important part here. It's it's such a margin. And as we were saying earlier, like the the result would have meant Spurs qualified automatically or qualified for the last sixteen last night with a win. A lot of money. I mean, a lot of money. And and they, now they go into the last game. I mean, everything is to play for in that group. Everyone is so tight. There's two points separating uh, top from bottom. So all of a sudden, you're looking at it going, Jesus, they could they could not qualify. They could finish third and get Europa League. Or they could still, uh, fair enough, qualify and, and we'll all forget about this this uh, VAR mess. But, so uh, they're, t- they're top of the group as it stands, Top right? of the group as it stands. And they have eight points. Sporting have seven. Frankfurt have seven. And Marseille have six. So Marseille are still in it. And I'm just trying to check. It's Marseille. Spurs, Marseille, Marseille away. It's in the south of France. Next Tuesday evening at 8 o'clock. I mean... England and Marseille. (laughs) You can just see it. Nothing ever goes bad in Marseille for for England. Never. No, never. Of course, they've no history there whatsoever. Um, Look, I don't... In the moment I was watching BT afterwards and Rio Ferdinand and Peter Croucher in studio with Jake and uh, they're trying to make sense of it all. Rio's drawn lines and they're, they're, I guess, lamenting the fact that here they are for... Minutes and minutes on end talking about drawn lines on a screen as opposed to talking about the Marcus Edwards' lovely goal for Lisbon. Well, like um, they don't, they're choosing to do that, though. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the de- decision of the director and the producer and the uh, the people in the studio. They're like... Yeah. Because everyone was confused. No one knew what the crack was. Eric Dyer was to the referee afterwards. The ball went backwards. Um, it appeared even Matt Doherty listened to him afterwards. Didn't seem to understand the rule, how it, how it was ado- uh, you know, well, taken on board. I, I, well, the way it's been explained is like, uh, um, was he behind the ball? No, he wasn't behind the ball. So he, wasn't, he was ahead of the ball. According to the screen grab, he was yeah. ahead of the ball. And so therefore, that's relatively straightforward, right? That's fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, my my the the issue I guess is the margins. It's so tight that yeah. I, I don't understand how you can actually. That's the bit, right? But if if they if if we accept that the line is being drawn week in week out, and some weeks is going for you and some weeks is going against you, they're the rules of engagement. Yeah, and oh, like you know, uh, you have to assume that the technology will get better and better and better, and the, some form of AI will intervene to go well. If I if the ball comes off at this pace, yeah, off the heads, there's a calculation of time, speed, and distance. It, it's clearly no longer. Yeah, but what if what if you're like 
header and it doesn't it's not a cushion header it's like a power header and you're like do you know what I mean I know and the ball stays in your head for longer yeah. like, the, the issue is is when you don't you don't know when to celebrate like Rio Ferdinand says if he was a footballer now and he scored a last minute winner he wouldn't celebrate because he'd just wait because he'd assume something was going to come think, up I don't think Rio has the self-control for that no I don't think so I'm uh, not sure about that Rio I think you might be lying to yourself see I think fans are split as well Like I, I was, I'm of the opinion that you can't it does take away from those moments. Like I, I, I was in, in Old Trafford last year when Ronaldo scored late winner against Villarreal. I was there when he scored late winner against Atalanta. And both times you're kind of looking around going, yeah, you're, you're celebrating yeah. the moment. No, it's true. It definitely takes you out of... But my that. brother and dad both think, oh no, the VR, the three and a half minutes adds to the drama. If it was five minutes, it'd be even better. I mean, um, but I, I have a certain, I have a certain like. I mean, watching those scenes this morning, knowing what was going on, I'm like, oh, that's very funny. That is, <laughs> I'm not a Spurs that. fan, and I understand. So, Bobby Dwyer, resident Spurs fan on OTBM, says, uh, "Never mind, Dale Johnson, an absolute joke of a decision. Vars ruining football. A clear and obvious decision shouldn't take five minutes. Even the offside decision was too tight to be conclusive. Like the too tight to be conclusive thing is important. It is. It yeah. is absolutely." However, you have to assume that technology is good now. It'll get better and it'll become great eventually. And we'll suddenly uh, there will be a point where it's like, oh, you're offside, you're offside, you're offside. Yeah, I think we're going to get to the stage where players are going to be like, there'll be some kind of red around the stadium that goes, you're offside, you're in an offside position. As I, in the goal line technology, kind of quick. It, well, I, as in that there'll be there'll be live signifiers telling players you're in an offside position. Oh yeah. But I, the other thing, like the uh, because the deflection isn't deliberate. He, yes. his, his, it, it doesn't, that doesn't count. I'm kind of like, should that rule not be, because that the not defender box? had purposely passed it back towards their goalkeeper, then. If he, if he passed it back and. It would have been fine. Totally. I kind of feel like. Even though Ken, yeah, even though Ken was in the offside position. Because if, if, if the defender had headed, if the defender had hand, handled the ball, yeah. it would have been a penalty, even though it was unintentional. So why is the ball coming off him? Why does that not reset things? And that would have been made it a goal. I, like, it's definitely worked the. The, the, it was it nearly it nearly mirrored the scenes in fact the scenes with Atletico were even more ridiculous last night so they, well, they drew it by Leverkusen and the 2-2 a win would have kept them in the hunt um, so they, now they're in the Europa League they're in the Europa League the final whistle goes it's 2-2 uh, referee, blow, referee blows the final whistle everyone starts shaking hands and then he goes on oh, no, hold on I need a check for a handball here he runs over to the screen sure enough penalty for Atletico I uh, can't remember who took the penalty it was a horrendous penalty keeper saves it Rebound off the crossbar from another player, and then the third it's shot. Niguez with the one off the crossbar. Yes, and then the third shot that the, the penalty taker himself got in the way and blocked the ball off the line essentially. So, however, Phil was saying this outside as well. The the article when it comes to this stuff uh, didn't matter as soon as the penalty is taken. That was and, the game and, over. Yeah, so I was wondering that. Like, what would happen was they would have scored, gone for the mad celebration, <laughs> and then the referee would have went. Oh, sorry, lads, uh, it's two two. Is that is that is that because the game was over? Yeah, like yeah. with the last. This is the last kick of the game, and so it's like a penalty in a penalty shootout. You can't, you can't be running in scoring the rebound in a shootout. The referee would have explained that to the players before they all went running in for rebounds. And I don't know. Maybe it's a good point. And why we should mic up players and, and uh, referees and let the referee tell exactly everybody what's going on in yeah. the um, in the system. Uh, why did it take so long to see Kane was offside? Are they using a Sinclair ZX Spectrum? Asks Chris Kyle. That is a, an excellent late 80s, early 90s reference that has gone straight over the head of most people. But I 100% got it. So I'm here for you, Chris Cal. Uh, Danny Mac one says the Monaghan Nidge. Ah, really? How's it going, lads? Yeah, that's my best. That's my best. I can't do any better than that. I'm sorry, but I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. Was it, was Nidgey into his um his garish tractor tops? Probably was. Yeah, the, the kind of retro retro vibes. Yeah. So I'll take that. I've been called worse. 
and uh, in his luxury vehicles. Uh, the All-Stars, the Gaelic Football All-Stars are out. Mm-hmm. We got 14 out of 15 yesterday. Well, Tommy got 14 out of 15. I would have got about 13 or 12. Shame. Yeah, well, I would have put Shane McGuigan in, so... Uh, who who did we miss? Uh, it was Tom O'Sullivan, uh, who everyone, I thought, was a shoe... Not a shoe-in, but uh, he had a fantastic year for Kerry, and look, they still got seven out of the 15 All-Stars. Um, probably, like, the thing I probably went against Tom was... Well, a he has two all stars previous, so he won't be too disappointed. But I think you'd be pretty still want to get more. I know, yeah. but but uh, Shane Walsh had a had a uh, clearly an excellent game on Tom in the final. Um, maybe that took away from it, as you said. Did the semi-finals and finals are they worth twice as much? Did, did that take away from Tom's I year? It, I think it's a, uh, when it comes down to marginal decisions, uh, not going up against the best, but you get punished for like not going up Bravery. against the best. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, there's definitely it's double-edged sword. Yeah, like you have the likes of uh, Graham O'Sullivan and Brian Bugley for for Kerry as well, who, who weren't really in the conversation, but can consider themselves as having a good year and being relatively unlucky not to get in there. I'll do the full team really quickly: the Shane Ryan, uh, Kerry first All Star, Chrissy McCaig first All Star, thirty three, totally deserved. Yeah. I think Chrissy McCaig literally put down one of the great GA careers, and um, it's going to be very interesting to see what Chrissy does in his uh, post playing career as well. Jason Foley. Uh, Fullback Liam Silk ends up getting cornerback. Tyke Morley of Kerry. Again, his first All Stars, Liam Silk and Jason Foley's everybody's first so far. John Daly is named at six and Gavin White is named at seven. I think Gavin White might have been missing from the uh, football pod. Yeah. And then after that was exactly as expected. Connor Glass and Killian McDade both getting their first All Stars. Paddy Clifford getting his second. Sean O'Shea his second. Kieran Kilkenny getting his sixth All Star. That is um, a Hall of Fame career. Uh, David Clifford. At 23, getting his fourth All Star. Jesus, how many will what he about get? That? Four. How many will he get? <sighs> so is it? Does Tommy Tommy Walsh have nine and Pat Spillane have nine? Is that what we're looking at? Yeah, oh, he'll he'll beat it, won't he? I mean, Conor McManus has had an extraordinary career and he has three All Stars. And Clifford's 23 years of age and he is one Four. more one more than him now. Yeah, Damien Comer getting his first All Star at 28 and Shane Walsh at 29 getting his first All Star. So. Uh, all those Kildare lads in your late 20s don't worry about it you still have time but you better you know, get the finger out lads this is your year yeah. don't, don't yeah. winter too well no counties take great pride in this because it was an Ian Burke got it in 2018 for Galway and before that I think it had been 15 years since their, their last one um, <clears throat> so everyone in Galway would be delighted with the five. Uh, five five is about right for Galway I was concerned that maybe someone like Homer look I was I was obviously putting forward you were arguing against for, him yesterday you were concerned that maybe you're well, no I was arguing against Kilkenny <clears throat> okay fair enough but, okay. but, but I said Comer should be in there and, and maybe McGuigan like McGuigan's unlucky <clears throat> uh, Rian O'Neill is unlucky um, <clears throat> Ethan Rafferty in goals probably pushed Shane Ryan fairly far but it's hard, it's hard to argue with sorry I'm, I'm, I've, I was completely incorrect I, I'm, I'm named Tommy Walsh and Pat Spillane who both had nine that was correct DJ Carey has nine right however somebody else has to have a record Henry Henry has eleven right eleven all-stars <clears throat> so what do we have four for uh, four for Cliff Dog so he's got to get another seven and he's twenty-four yeah, so and if he plays till he's what? He's got to play to 33 and, and win it every year to to go too clear. And, he will um, win it every year. He, well, there could be down years, you know, injury is the thing. Well, injury. Like, That's Henry, the only way he Henry won't had, win one. Henry had an ACL, but did, did he win it that year? He might have because it was only... Uh, the, when was he? He just needs to be fit and Kerry... But the next go, year, the ACL would have had the most impact. It probably was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even if Kerry make a quarterfinal or semi-final and he plays uh, every game, they'll, he'll still get an all-star because he's that good. Gooch won eight. 
Uh, yes. He's alone on eight. And then JJ Delaney, Noel Skihan, Mikey Sheehy and Jimmy Barry Murphy have seven. And Jimmy Barry's are football and hurling. They should count double, in fairness. If you get one in two sports, you, we should be able to uh, double those up. Uh, all right, is there any anybody having any complaints of that? I'm, I'm really, I don't think so. I think the arguments are, are fairly, like, you can argue certain positions, of course, but it's it's just a matter of opinion. It's, uh, as Eamon Fitzmaurice said, it's probably not the most controversial of all-star picks this year. Like, as I said, Ethan Rafferty had an unbelievable year, Rian O'Neill as well, Shane McGuigan, uh, Graham O'Sullivan, Brian O'Beugly, uh, Tom O'Sullivan we mentioned, all can consider themselves unlucky. James McCarthy, you, you, you spoke about yesterday. Um, but you can't argue against any of the players that have been picked. And some years, some years, some years that is the case. Um, you, you look at the team and you're like, okay, well, how did they get in um, over them? But no, that's not the case this year. It's all right. Well, I, the, the way this always works is that the partisan people, fans of certain counties, are always going to be massively oh, yeah. upset. So yeah, you know, get your anger out with us. We're happy. We're here for you this morning. Oh eight seven nine one eighty one eighty is the text number. Or of course, you can always get us on YouTube comments uh, Josh Little's going to join us in just a second uh, fresh from beating England yesterday in the cricket Michael Verney's going to join us in the studio at 10 past 8 we do the same for the football for the hurling we did for the football and we'll talk to him about Davy Burke being named as the New York's common boss as well Joy Malone uh, Shelburne assistant manager is going to talk to us about the conclusion of the National League this weekend there's a possibility of a three-way playoff and you had to be there this year this week is Paddy Agnew the legendary Italian football correspondent, ex of the Irish Times, who is going to um, talk about being there for some of the best football occasions that there have been in European football over the last half decade or so. Now, to Australia, I'm delighted to say Josh Little is with us, as I said, fresh or not so fresh today after having beaten England in the cricket yesterday. Josh, how are you getting on? Yeah, good morning, guys. Um, Yeah, I'm good. I had a nice day today, just sort of soak it all in and be around the guys and sort of enjoy the moment I guess so obviously for us we're watching here this time 24 hours ago uh, praying for the rain to come uh, a very unusual Irish situation or at least for it not to not to stop what time of the day is it for you guys at that point like what happens immediately afterwards after after the rain after the match yesterday we're like what what like after is the match yeah do you all sit yeah, back and watch it again or is it like well we need to celebrate well, the moment well, we, we head into the change rooms and um, we sing the national anthem together in a puddle and grab a bite to eat and maybe a beer for a couple of people and just soak in the moment while while watching the highlights on the TV. There's usually a TV in the change room when you're in there. So, yeah, just trying to soak up the moment as much as possible and just enjoy enjoy it. Does it sink in straight away that, OK, this is like a very, very good England uh, T20 team? And we didn't, it wasn't a fluke. Like, I, I'm kind of joking about praying for the rain, but like, you put yourselves in a winning position. England knew exactly what they had to do and they couldn't do it. Yeah, it's, it's one of those ones where I guess absolutely delighted with the win and, you know, you're sort of not expecting that. But at the same time, me personally, anyway, I sort of have the mentality of, well, I'm not, I'm not surprised because we're, we're a good side and, and, you know, we can beat anyone on our day. So it's sort of exciting to see what the future holds in terms of the next couple of games. Um, in the coming week so yeah I'm just absolutely buzzing to get stuck into those games because anything really is possible from here When did that confidence hit you about that this team being good enough to compete at this level and to pull off that victory because you know the, the, the form has been in and out over the last 18 months there's been some really really great performances and there's been some letdowns you'd have to say and yeah. so to get to this stage in this competition in this format what was giving you that confidence? 
I, I think just just having played a decent amount of that format of cricket, I just sort of understand that things don't always go your way, and that there are good days and bad days. It's just about keep working hard, and and you'll have more good days than bad days. And, and thankfully, we're starting to see the or reap the rewards for all our hard work, and it's it's just great to see. And as I said, you you don't know what the future holds for us because things are going great at the moment. What did it mean, Josh, for you to, to do it in the MCG as well? I mean, such a such a historic venue. I was listening to to your captain speaking the other day after the match, and he was talking about the fact that he's all did a, a museum tour as well. And, and I know it's the the setting of Ronnie, Ronnie Delaney's gold medal for Ireland back in the Melbourne Olympics years and years ago. Yeah. So it must have made it all the more special. Yeah, we we were actually watching the India Pakistan game a couple of days ago, where there was a hundred thousand people and never seen the place so full. And obviously that was our first time there, so we were all absolutely buzzing to get out to such a famous ground and, and put on a show against what was obviously an incredibly strong English side. So we were all absolutely buzzing to get out there and uh, so thankful it went went our way and it was a great day. You're uh, you're like you're only, what, 22 at the minute, Josh, is it? 22, 23 next week. And yet you're you're a veteran of the team. Like you made your debut at, at, at 16 uh, back in 2016. So you're one of the older guys on the team now. <laughs> Happy birthday, by the yeah. way. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I guess... I'm a young guy, but also an old guy, and mm. I, I'm sort of, I've, I've sort of taken the role of trying to take the guys who, who may not necessarily be the same age as me, but might be a little bit newer into the team, sort of take them under my wing a little bit and sort of try to give some of the knowledge that I've got over the years um, playing in pressure situations and trying to help the guys grow um, the way I have, play, I guess, playing against these quality opposition. What what's going through your head with those two quick wickets yesterday? I mean, is it are you allowed to enjoy the moment? Are you able to enjoy the moment? Or are you just thinking, right? Let's get the next one going here. Yeah, I, I'm always trying. I'm trying to enjoy every second I'm out there. That's, that's the reason I play. Um, I try to bring a relaxed environment to the team. I'm quite a relaxed, relaxed guy and chill guy. And you know, some of the guys are a little bit more nervous or, or you know whatever you want to call it. So I try and just calm everyone down, slow it down, and just. Yeah, sort of just be in the moment a little bit and and, and t- see what's in front of you. When you when you play at that level as a sixteen year old, you're obviously already thinking, <clears throat> "I want this to be to be <clears throat> my professional career." Pardon me. And so that's obviously something that that's in your head at that point. When do you realise that you're going to be able to make this your living and that it's not just going to be something that you were really good at uh, at school and really good at underage, but that actually you are going to be able to represent your country and make a living doing this. Yeah, interesting question. And the guys actually always ask me this one. I don't really have the answer, but I guess making my ODI debut against England and getting getting four wickets there at Malahide at our home ground against England as well, funnily enough. Um, sorry about that. Um, I just, I don't want to say it hit me that, you know, I, I could potentially make a living, but that, that's when it sort of dawned on me that this is an exciting sport and, um, you know, anything could happen if you put in the hard work. And, and luckily things are, going my way at the moment I'm not saying they always will but fingers crossed um, we keep going the way we are that yeah things will be good I think uh, traditionally players who showed promise like you within the Irish system would have been looking towards signing for an English county team and then who knows what the international future would have held so things have obviously changed in that pathway that you feel comfortable that you don't have to do that yeah exactly I mean I don't want to go off topic from from the Irish stuff but there's franchise opportunities from around the world so it's not a, It's not necessarily the be-all, end-all getting over to England. What we're doing at the moment is equally as special and, and if other things come come from that, whether it be 
going to other competitions around the world well that's just an added bonus and, and one one we're all hoping to, to achieve I was interested Josh to, to look at comments from Andrew Belburney as well talking after the game where he, he said he was looking at the, the matchups before the match and he said he, he was struggling to understand how Ireland could compete with England uh, on their day if, they, if every player performed like, and, and they're probably one of if not the best teams in the world at this format as well yeah. so uh, how did you manage to, to, to do it I mean was it, was it a case of just being confident that, that, that in those matchups you could on your, on your day uh, be up there with them? Yeah, as I alluded to, just just being relaxed and believing that we are as good as them because I've no doubt in my mind that we are as good as them. And, you know, the English boys, I don't want to say, come with a little bit of arrogance. Um, so we felt, I, I felt personally we catch them on the hop a little bit. Um, and we did at the beginning of our batting innings and we did at the beginning of our bowling innings. So, yeah. It makes it all the sweeter than beating, beating the English lads, I'd imagine, if there's 100%. that little bit of arrogance. Hundred percent, yeah. We we were just saying, did we? Were they were they being a little bit? You know, were they taking us for granted a little bit? Not that that matters. We we still went out and gave our all, and um, yeah, delighted. Um, Josh, you're, you're like the right age exactly to remember the kind of first breakthrough of an Irish cricket team onto the national sporting consciousness. Um, and there's been a couple of instances in the past, generally off the back of like uh, maybe Kevin O'Brien springs to mind in the. Um, in the 50s and uh, yeah. obviously before that we, we were uh, the Sri Lanka that whole story that was all amazing so do you yeah. feel now having come th- through the system and, and watched those as a kid that were kind of ready as a country and as a sport to capitalise on this? Yeah 100% I think the guys are all beaming with confidence and I, I always look back with my friend Harry who's on the team as well you know I remember sitting sitting in my house at 4am watching cricket games with the lads out in, in Australia and wherever winning games in the World Cup and just wishing I hope to be there one day and, and now that we are we're really soaking it in and trying to enjoy every minute um, also with the confidence that we are as good as anyone else in the world and, and that's a great feeling um, Your siblings are also pretty good at cricket so it's obviously the main sport in the house Yeah it's it's, it's a weird one my, my, neither of my parents or grandparents or anything really played cricket when we were growing up we were more of a hockey family um, and yeah I was playing hockey one day and one of my one of my friends in school, his dad just came up to me and just sort of said, "Do you want to come down and give cricket a go?" And you know, you've got hand-eye coordination, and I just sort of fell in love with, fell in love with it from there. And my sister sisters followed suit. And did you fall in love with batting or bowling first? <laughs> um, I, I'm going to say bowling. I, I, I've always had an interest in batting, um, but just with the schedule and stuff, I. I, I Unfortunately, can't work on my batting the way I am able to work on my bowling. But I'll, I'll say I like both equally as much. Uh, it turns out though that um, you're obviously very good at the bowling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean that's what I work on the most, and that that's what I, I, I have a passion about bowling. And you know, I want to be the best in the world one day, um, and that drives me every day to to get better and better. And I. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Like that, that it's great to hear that because uh, that's going to be inspiring to the next generation of young cricketers. Not that you're not a young cricketer, like you, you know, you could still be doing this in 12, 14 years' time mm-hmm. at international level. It turns out, especially the way uh, sports science works, and it sounds like you're looking after yourself as well. So, like that level of ambition and the fact that you play for Ireland as opposed to playing for England, saying that is is really inspirational for the next generation. Yeah, hundred percent. Like as I've alluded to a couple of times, like we, we, we're as good as anyone else. And it's just about getting that belief, getting that experience into the, the younger guys um, 
so they can also believe that we are at this level because I remember a time where where I didn't believe we, you know we were anywhere anywhere near the standard and playing a big team is a massive occasion and whatever you know I will lose but I hope we have a good game but now it's sort of like we're at this level we can we can compete with these boys and, it, and it's not so much about being nervous about it anymore it's about going out and showcasing your skills and, and really giving them a good run for their money uh, Did you get chatting to Owen Morgan at all after the match Josh I know we were watching him on TV yesterday he had a bit of a, a smirk on his face we were trying to gauge how he, how he felt after the match did you get talking to him at all no, I, I didn't. I didn't. The the, the the scenes of all the Irish fans as well over there, like, and, and a lot of them would have kind of extended the holiday, I guess, from from Durban to get to, to Melbourne as well, and spent a lot of money in the process. So it must mean so much to see a family as well, but but also just fans over there. Yeah, it's amazing. My parents are actually out here, and you know they sort of they sort of booked the trip hoping that we would get through, but you know always sort of said to me, "Oh, when you guys go home, we'll we'll just carry on and." do a little holiday so to actually make that a reality that no they're not on a holiday they're actually coming to watch us still play in these big games is um, is a special memory and, and one I'll never forget that's class uh, that's the type of thing parents would say to take the pressure off you when secretly they know uh, we're going to that England game we've got that circle don't worry it's in the MCG <laughs> yeah exactly that's class. That's um, that is a, a really nice story. Um, I, I mean, this is like obviously a, a more philosophical question, but like, is this is this the format that suits Ireland the best? Is this what we should focus on into the future, or can we use this to help make sure that we're really good at the fifty and eventually the test side becomes even better? Like, do we have the resources to compete on all fronts, or what's your instinct about that at the moment? I think I, I think just the nature with our schedule, we, we don't have that much test cricket on the schedule, so. It's, it's naturally going to be very hard to compete with the teams who, who play 10 times the amount of test cricket that we do. But both 50 over and T20 cricket, we, we're, we're right up there. Um, and we have been for a while with the 50 over stuff. We've had a good couple of years there. And doing well in the T20s is actually relatively new for us. We, we were quite a weak side a couple of years ago. So, um, in my opinion, uh, the white ball stuff should be our, should be our focus. Um, and obviously trying to, over the next sort of 10 years, build into test cricket. Well, that all makes sense. Well, you've got a newfound audience of uh, of young kids who are out in the back garden bowling and batting, and um, hopefully, it leads to all loads more success. It, it like you know everybody here is like celebrating because we beat England, but you guys obviously, you, first thing you talked about was like really looking forward to the rest of the competition because there are some more big scalps to take. You got the the host nation at another famous ground to look forward to. That's going to be quite the occasion. Yeah, exactly. Like. We never really expected after the first the first stage of the competition to, to end up here, and um, so it's just sort of a, just got to roll with it and enjoy the moment and hopefully take another couple of scalps with us because I'm sure all those teams will have seen that game and sort of uh, be a little bit scared maybe we'll see. <laughs> um, uh, so anything could happen and I'm really looking forward to playing those big teams you've got that experience as well I guess Josh of the, of the summer series you've, you've played the likes of India and New Zealand South Africa and, and, and Afghanistan who are the opponents tomorrow as well like will, will, will having played Afghanistan and beaten them quite recently give yourselves a bit of confidence like are, are you are you expecting to win heading into that, that uh, next game tomorrow yeah 100% I, I think we should be winning that game um, for sure because just the nature of the wickets they're, they're naturally quite a spin dominant team and, and the ball doesn't spin too much here um, and the way we bowled yesterday and, and, and batted up top, I think, uh, would really knock them off their seat. And yeah, I expect us to win. 
I saw Andrew Balberni talking about the you know hoping the hope that this could spark a golden generation again of of young Irish cricketers and uh, like the the age profile of the team is something we spoke about on the show yesterday, Josh. Like it's like there obviously are the young or the older uh, lads on the team as as any team would have, but it is mm. when you look at the average age, um, fairly positive in terms of the the amount of youth on the t- on the side. Yeah, hundred percent. As I was saying earlier, you now it's it's about getting those guys into, into the pressure situation. Like, for example, Fionn Hand yesterday, just his third third game for Ireland against England. You know, it's it's about throwing people in there and, and seeing what, what they can do. And that's what happened with me. I, I made my de- my ODI debut against England. I was sort of thrown into the deep end to see what I could do. And as I said, it sort of just sparked my career. So there's no reason why any young guys in our team can't be thrown in into the deep end and given, a, given it a good go. So... Yeah, it's just about exposure, and you gain confidence from playing loads of games. So you need to, you need to give the guys the chance. You felt like, regardless of the weather yesterday, and, and like when the weather closed in, we were kind of sitting here going, "Are England coming back? Are Ireland still still at the forefront?" Like, were you confident that regardless of whether the rain had arrived, you were going to go on and win that match anyway? I guess we'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask then? Uh, were you were you bowling to Ali, or or had you finished at that stage? Yeah, I bowled to Ali. Yeah. What was that like? Because he was he was pretty good. Yeah, I actually I actually played with him on a team last year, so I'd know him decently well. He's he's a very funny character, um, and he was sort of sledging me on the pitch, saying, you know, he's going to hit me for six or whatever. So I was having a little bit of banter back with him, um, but no, he's obviously a class player and. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I couldn't get him out, but you know, it was good good to bolt him. Yeah, well, because he was he was in good form, but like in fairness, you know, the rest of the uh, the England order up to that point hadn't put them in a position to win. But uh, what's that tension like when you know that the winning and losing of the match is in the next few balls, really? Yeah, it, it's quite nerve wracking because, as you said, like anything could have happened there from from when we came off. Really, at one stage, you know, they needed nearly 11 and over and I was thinking God we have this in the bag easy um, and then obviously they had a decent over where they had a 6 and a 4 and it came back down to 9 and over and I was thinking God these two could could take it away from us here which would have been absolutely devastating and then we just sort of looked up and saw those black clouds rolling in and it was it was meant to be Joshua are you like looking at Ali in the eye are you looking at the, the batsman in the eye or is it like a kind of I'm not going to let him see anything I'm not going to there's no this, the sledging is a kind of yeah, are you walking away, muttering to him, or is it like I'm coming for you? How, how aggressive does it get, and how how subtle does it need to be? Ah, uh, I think it, it varies person to person. Between me and him, it was it was before the game. He was he just came up to me and told me he was going to smack me, but uh, it was just a bit of banter. Um, but yeah, no, I have had times where it's gotten heated, and yeah, I sort of try to stay away from that a little bit. I try to to just focus on, on what I'm trying to do and, and don't really get involved too much um, but still trying to be aggressive as I can. Yeah, well, it obviously worked out and as you said, it was meant to be. Josh, congratulations. Thanks a million for joining us this morning. Cheers. Thanks very much. Cheers. It's uh, Josh Little there. He, he's uh, two sisters who play for Ireland as well. So it's, uh, they're pretty good. Reasonably talented family, yeah. yeah. And being, <laughs> uh, we should have pointed it out there, the um, game against England where they threw him in four wickets, including Owen Morgan. Jesus. It's the, not bad, is it? The obliviousness of youth. <clears throat> I mean... That throw them in, give them a chance. They they don't feel nerves, um, and it's hard to believe he's he's so experienced on the team. As in, he's he's it's six years he's been on the team, and yet he's only twenty two, soon to be twenty three. So uh, I mean, what an experience that is for him.
and for him to remember those great moments in, in, in times past of Irish teams doing the likes of this uh, but this probably tops the pile in terms of achievements so. uh, and I love that little bit of sledging in cricket as well oh yeah you like to see it uh, five minutes past eight here this morning uh, Regatta Great Outdoors are launching their new Freddie Flintoff collection this autumn and to celebrate we've got a 100 euro Regatta voucher to give away every day and one lucky winner will get a 500 euro voucher to be with the chance of winning like and retweet our Regatta Great Outdoors social post on Twitter today on our main Twitter page that's at Off The Ball and remember, shop the Freddie Fentoff collection in-store at Regatta Great Outdoors or online at regatta.ie. After the break, we're live with the Irish Independence' Michael Verney to take us through he, who he thinks will end up being on the All-Star Hurling team, which is announced tomorrow night at the banquet. First, you might have seen this by now, but 16 of the Australian men's football team who are going to the World Cup in Qatar came together to post a video highlighting the human rights abuses in Qatar, including the treatment of immigrant workers and the LGBT plus community. Here's a snippet. We're back after this. OTB AM. Yeah, right. Sorry about that. The audio on the uh, Australian video didn't work. We'll um, we'll tweet it a little bit later on, so you can have a look at it for yourselves. Now, a reminder: OTB AM brought to you with Gillette in association with Movember Effortless Shave, Magnificent Mo. You can sign up or donate now at Movember.com. Now, Michael Verney is with us. We're going to talk the hurling all stars in a minute. But Davy Burke has been named the Roscommon Common Football Manager. Um, you were saying on Twitter it's a good appointment yeah Davey's a very shrewd uh, shrewd manager shrewd coach he had two very good years with Wicklow that was after leading your native Kildare obviously to that under 20 title in 2018 yeah. won a county title with Sarsfields a uh, year later he was with Sarsfields earlier on this year and probably disappointed maybe with how they how they fared but yeah I don't know he was at a, a coaching clinic recently really innovative coach thinks deeply about football watches uh, an incredible amount of football um, I think it's a, I, like Roscommon were uh, kind of teetering on the edge I would say of where they were going to go and as regards the options that they had to me he was the, he was the best option um, it's funny Frank Roach did a piece in our paper today um, and he pr- probably was leaning towards Brendan Hackett taking the job as in older managers are in vogue now again yeah. 10 years ago it was yeah. young managers yeah. you know it was early 30s uh, but Davies now like he was the youngest manager inter-county manager when he took on Wicklow in 2020 he's still the youngest inter-county right. manager now um, but could yeah. be the youngest manager for the next 20 years but he could be <laughs> but like it's, it's interesting like Conor O'Rourke is retiring yeah. Kevin McStay is retired Jack O'Connor's retired I think Jack O'Connor was the oldest All-Ireland senior football winner manager ever last year right um, and a lot of the managers will tell you now they need to be retired they need time uh, Liam Kearns is the same with Offaly uh, retired from the from the guards you need an awful lot of time uh, and I know Davey talked before about the sacrifices on his own health of being involved in inter-county management but like I remember chatting about that he's going through all the negatives but if anyone's listening I, I love it you know you know what I mean and, that's yeah. it. and he does love yeah. it and he'll uh, Roscommon's not a million miles from him where, he, where he's based um, he was he was forced to finish football at quite a young age due to a lot of injuries and just was thrown straight into coaching and he's taken to it like a duck to water yeah it'll be very interesting for Kildare supporters to watch how successful he is thinking you know mm-hmm. maybe maybe he should have got the job but well, it's a funny one because Roscommon are Division 1 Kildare Division 2 so he's taken a step up technically it's a good job yeah Yeah. no no one in Kildare is looking down on Roscommon football going you know uh, we we can't at this stage but the dream team scenario came in and that was too irresistible to the county board and I can totally understand why as well so 
Mark McHugh is an interesting appointment alongside him. Um, I, my wonder is, make it like twelve weeks to appoint a new manager. Like Monaghan took a long time, Donegal took a long time. But is that what it is? Just the, the time taken in terms of commitment levels is such that it's going to take two or three months for for some counties to get managers nowadays. Well, it's not as appealing maybe as it would have been before. Yeah. I think people are even though it's a shorter season, which should help. And maybe you think that's one of the reasons why maybe Jack McCaffrey and Paul Mannion are potentially back with Dublin now. But. Uh, like it is, it's a huge commitment, particularly for a younger man. And you have to be at a, a younger man or woman, you have to be at a certain stage in your life. I'd say, like, you're not going to be expecting kids, I'd say, you know, to be an intercounty manager now. You just don't have time. You probably need them, need your kids to be at a certain age as well. And it's just a difficult one, yeah. Like, uh, Donegal were the goods of 120 days, I think, mm-hmm. Lookerford. Uh, Roscommon were 12 weeks. Uh, I just think it's been gas. And I kind of said it at the time. You know, all the stellar tickets that were in the mix for Mayo, uh, so only one ticket was going to get it of the four but if you look at where the rest of the candidates have gone there's about seven or eight involved in inter-county management be it coaching or otherwise so sometimes you're waiting to see what happens if you're a, in inverted commas Leicester County maybe or not outside of the very very top tier you're waiting to see what happens in some other counties and see where some of the big hitters go and then maybe take the fall shall we say yeah and the other thing is that everybody was like oh this has to be oh, you've got to appoint them now there's club championship matches you're missing it's like well okay that's this season but this is hopefully going to be a two slash three year appointment ideally it's at least three years before somebody so this three or four weeks that we're taking to get the decision right in the long run it's the right thing to get the right person yeah. as opposed to rushing in this guy's available right now we need to get him well that's what happens in the GA to be honest with you because I've seen it with club managers particularly guys that do the merry-go-round just say Burr for example are looking for a manager shall we say hypothetically you'll hear all sorts of rumours about who's available and who's not and you'll hear that a guy that might be in the mix or a rival club you'll hear some all of a sudden a rumour that this oh no they're after him and then the call is made and it's like okay we have him we're sorted and then maybe six months later you're thinking mm, maybe, maybe we should have waited maybe we should have just <laughs> you know went through the process of waiting it out a bit more but that's what happens but I think Roscommon have gotten a very good guy in, in Davy Burke uh, very forward thinking coach and a guy who digests a, a crazy amount of football every weekend he's involved with um, Manute's Sigerson team as well which mm. kind of felt like the link between Kildare and Manute needs to be very solidified it's like a big opportunity for them to use this as a breeding ground but anyway it's uh, another day's work so the, the hurling all-stars the football all-stars was very very straightforward Tommy had 14 out of 15 correct is the hurling all-stars as clear cut uh, it's clear cut enough I'd say Jerry yeah um, like Limerick are going to dominate there's no point in saying any different but there's, a, there's probably a couple of positions that are up for grabs say one half-back position that would be somewhat up in the air maybe one midfield position I'd say I'd say thereafter I'd, I'd be confident enough you'd have 13 or 14 of them and maybe one might fluctuate the big one for me Jerry is and I'll go down through my team in a minute but the big one for me is uh, the cornerback position and particularly that number two shirt so this is an interesting one Sean Finn will be going for five all-stars in a row and Sean Finn is the best cornerback in the country okay but Sean Finn and I love Sean Finn as a player but Sean Finn was not the best cornerback in the country this year so the all-stars are picked on this year with due, with due credit to the players this year it's supposed to be yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so Mikey Butler was the, be- was the best man marking cornerback in the game this year you're given you're given the, the give me one minute to get to that because yeah. I want to just go through this here right so the goalkeeper nominees are Aina Murphy Galway Owen Murphy of Kilkenny and Nicky Quaid of Limerick and you've gone for Nicky Quaid yeah no I have gone for Nicky yeah um he probably doesn't get tested maybe as much as, as as the two other keepers there probably particularly Owen Murphy um, but that's just the nature of the defence he has around him and goalkeeping is not about 
shot stopping anymore. That's a big part of it. But his distribution is his distribution is so much better than any of the other keepers there. He puts balls in positions that are so advantageous to his forwards. Um, and he's just he's he's the building block. Everything starts with him. So Nicky Quaid for me there. He's pretty humble as well. I remember talking to him at various stages after all Ireland finals, and he's like, uh, last couple of minutes, you're just lorrying it down on top of that half forward line. That is it's certainly easy. not the case. That's like, definitely not the really? case. They don't lorry ball down. Yeah, he, it's it's so methodical what he does, and he's the quarterback that starts every attack basically. You do feel like if if it if for whatever reason it looks like he's lowering it down it's because Grod Hegarty has his hand up and it's going straight yeah, to his hand yeah. Grod doesn't even have to jump and it's like well well that's a big help as well there's no point in saying anything it's it a big is, help having, having Hegarty Hayes, Hayes. and uh, Tom Morrissey there but a lot of the time there's runs been made to make space for him to put it into his job is to put it into the, those areas and do you know what it is as well it's the timing of it it's one thing putting it there but it's putting it there in the player's stride so he yeah. doesn't even have to stop yeah. um, and he does that so so good OK so I, I think you've given away who is your number two you've gone for Mikey Butler yeah Mikey Butler to me was the best uh, man marking probably defender in this year's championship it's amazing to think he was coming back from a cruciate and a, and a broken kneecap this is his first inter-county season uh, he's only about 5 foot 7 5 foot 8 max you know that great picture of him doing the doing the water in 2014 for Kilkenny he was water by and he's like he's, he's pint size and Richie Hogan is beside him and then Lee Chin is beside him it's like little you know bigger very big and he's made uh, he probably wouldn't have been well touted as a potential senior star but he was brilliant this year he's man the match in the Leinster final where he followed Cottle Mannion a lot of the time he kept Tony Kelly anonymous in the All-Ireland semi-final and he had a good final as well it kind of changes how you think about Kilkenny into the future having somebody like Mikey Butler come on the scene where it's like yeah. Kilkenny don't really so they've had good underage uh, talent coming through but not that type of defender who you can rely on who might be a shut down corner yeah like Brian Cody trusted him at marking the opposition's best forward in his debut season and he was he was absolutely brilliant funny enough uh the, he did the matchups for the All Ireland final. Maybe wouldn't have suited him. Maybe someone like Galan, who's very good in the air. So he was just he was just picking up Graham Catty and I would say he he won that duel. But maybe he wasn't allowed to have the same influence as, he, as he'd had in some other games. So to me, to me, he's the he's the All Star cornerback. Yeah, it, it's close between him and Sean Finn. Oh yeah, it, it yeah. is close. Yeah, I'm just really interested to see whether whether legacy gets Finn over the line. And I think Finn is Finn is the best cornerback in the country. Um, but he wasn't the best cornerback in the country this year if you get me uh, you've gone for Hugh Lawler at fullback what was the competition here like uh, stiff enough yeah probably Mike, Mike Casey from Limerick would have been would have been very close Dottie Burke from Cork as well uh, Hugh Lawler came back from I think he had a broken thumb in the middle of the championship and he came back and he had a bit of trouble with Conor Whelan maybe in the first 20 minutes of the Leinster final but was brilliant thereafter he's your prototype modern day fullback he's about 6 for 4 He's fast, he's good in the air, he doesn't have a fixation with hurling a load of ball. Do you know, fullback is a stopper, mm. essentially number one, he minds the house really, really well, and he probably got the better of uh, of Aaron Galan in the All-Ireland final. Had he not, Galan would probably have been in the run for hurler of the year. So, I think it should be two all Auckland Gales club men, side by side, two and three. That's pretty impressive. Uh, you've gone for Barry Nash at four. 
Ah, yeah, sure. He's probably changed what a modern day cornerback is now. He's like a floating cornerback. He's as much of an attacker as he is in a defend as, as he is a defender. Bombing down. When you see him raiding through, you know you're in serious trouble. I don't know if there's ever been a better distributor of a ball as a, as you know in that fullback line. Traditionally, he's just humped long and he does anything but that. And again, it's been a long time uh, before Finn last year. It had been a long time before a cornerback had been in the hurler deer conversation, and he's. Firmly in at this area. You're in, the, you're in the the cornerback fraternity. Mike yeah. you're obviously going to put that argument forward. Like, how is that position? Uh, like when you think of former all stars in that position, like the likes of Ollie Canning or Tommy Welch probably was picked at all star a couple of years there as well. Like how has it changed? Is it, are, are there different attributes for a cornerback now than there was even 10, 15 years ago? I think the principle of being able to uh, stop your man first and foremost is still it's just about the main duty I'd say. But like gone are the days where you're striking ball over the shoulder and just slurrying it down the field you have to be able to look up you have to be able to break a tackle uh, and he's as potent of a weapon a cornerback yeah. coming forward and starting an attack as any player out the field is and that's like I think it's 19 it's 30 years since Brian Corkin got hurled the year as a cornerback at, ni- at 19 and the game has probably changed an awful lot since then and it just shows you how good he was this year for a cornerback to be in that hurler deer conversation he was outstanding from start to finish so the half, there's no competition for him for Barry Nash I don't think so no okay. because generally now the way Hurling has played there's two in the full back line now and two in the full forward line so he kind of comes out I think it's perfectly set up Like I put it to you this way when, I, when you pick an all-star team you like it to be realistic as well like what would happen here is Mikey Butler and Hugh Lawler would be the two men inside and Barry Nash would be the floating one so yeah. it, it picks itself perfectly Well we were talking about this with, with Tommy when we were talking about the football yesterday is that like some players in modern football their job is to be a sweeper and on the ball and so it's kind of easier in some respects yeah. to look great because mm. you're you're the pass before the pass that makes the goal or you're the one who like steps in and intervenes whereas uh, for Chrissy McCaig to stand out it's much harder for the yeah, man markers yeah. to stand out it's much harder oh big time yeah and in a way I don't know like maybe we need best man marker you know and you pick three of them and you're like best sweeper and you pick one I don't know I don't, I don't know how to answer but making it realistic is like yeah, well, I think you have to be picking. They have to be picking a team like you would want it to go out and play. Yeah, and I'd be more than happy to have the two lads inside and Barry Nash sweeping essentially as he does. Okay, uh, really weak fullback or halfback line here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dermot Burns, Declan Hannan, and Parik Mannion are your three. Yeah, this, like, this is going to be it, isn't it? This is what you think the All Stars going to. Yeah, be. I think so. Yeah, you'd uh, you wouldn't like to be trying to penetrate that half back line as a half hour right now, which you're trying to think how you're going to break him down. Uh, Burns was on another planet this year, boys. Like just ridiculous what he was doing. There's never been a half back that does does what he can do that can hurt you from hundred and hundred hundred and ten yards. Uh, like in the first half, the All Ireland final this year, Owen Murphy put a puck out down. Burns puts the claw up and puts it back over the bar. Like you know, Kilkenny are gone from being on the attack to you know. It's negative. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. And so, so quickly. And it's such a crisp striker, the ball as well. Like when you're playing Limerick now, you're trying to think, how are we going to stop Dermot Burns hitting us for three or four points from wing back? And Tipperary actually did it really well this year. They 
almost shoveled a lot of bodies to his wing so that he never got a clean strike away yeah. and they managed to keep him off the ball but he's yeah and his free taking ability they just they just trust him from anywhere inside 120 yards it's a and it's not just the freeze that's going to make him hurler of the year if he is hurler of the year it's it's the all round game oh yeah big time um, I was chatting to Cyril Farrell about him last night because I'm just doing a piece for the paper on Saturday and he just said the one thing in college with me also he was always so mad to attack the ball attack the ball and half backs a lot of the time now you see it at club level a lot of the time their first duty is to stop the ball just stop it going through and he does that brilliantly but not only does he stop it or break it down he usually brings it on with him as well so there, he's gone from his def- main defensive duties to stop it perfect but then he brings it forward and sets up an attack and his ball inside to the forward line is class and his work alongside Hannon like those two guys are just like two peas in a pod there and link so unbelievably well I was reading um, John Fogarty uh, last night from earlier in the year where he was picking his July All-Stars at that particular juncture and he had, he had Burns, Hannon and then Paddy Deegan of Kilkenny at left wing back. Like, he had a great year as well but mm. it's hard to argue with the final three. Yeah, you, you see some of the names on that list that don't make the, the half-back line you're like, Jesus, this is yeah, strength yeah. and depth there. Like. Yeah, Paddy Deegan probably suffered from the fact that he had to mark Grode Hegarty in the yeah. Ireland final realistically uh, but Parik Mannion to me it, this year was back to his form of 17 and 18 when he was uh, really in his pomp and particularly when they were struggling even in the Leinster final against Kilkenny when they were there was a sinking ship in the last 20 minutes he was still the one leading the fight and same against Limerick this year Do the, do the finals and semi-finals like we were talking yesterday do they count for, for double in your in your mind like Thomas Sullivan very unlucky to miss out in the football all-stars well, Positive and negative right Well like, yeah and, but Mark and Shane Walsh in the final probably similar to, to yeah. Deegan probably did him out of an all-star potentially yeah, actually, sure you don't know yourself, but most of the stock is placed on the semi final and final, realistically. Yeah. And that's why we move to someone like Tony Kelly in a minute. That's why there's the potential for him to be left out because he's such a quiet semi final. Mm. But, but like, you can't forget what happened in Munster before that when he was on probably on another planet to any other player in the province, realistically. But there is an awful lot of stock placed on it. Yeah, I do feel for the defender who is on a team that is so good and has been brilliant all the year and then is trusted in the final to go up against the best hurler in the country. You know, putting in an all-time great performance, and you're like, "Oh, well, you can't be an all-star because you were." But I, I stood, I tried. Like I, you know, I was good enough to be considered for that role. You know. Yeah, no, I get you. Yeah, it's not simple. Yeah. Anybody else who is close to getting into that half-back line or full-back line? Uh, Dermot Ryan from Clare would have been close in my view anyway um, again another player who when Kilkenny were battering him in that semi-final he was kind of he was standing up I think he had a couple of points for play that day he was good in the Munster final as well see it's funny it depends and we're talking there about what duties you get it depends on what duties you get in a given yeah. day sometime like Dermot Ryan you c- could maybe say had a quiet enough Munster final but he was dueling with Tom Morrissey at times he was dueling with Gerard Hegarty at times if you're not touching the ball it's not necessarily a bad thing as long as they're not touching like Gerard Hegarty had a quiet Munster final I think he was on McInerney for most of it Tom Morrissey it was good in the Munster final, but they had a good battle. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes you're not going to get that eight or nine out of ten performance. Yeah, and look for when it comes to the, the midfield. That's I think that the whole point is like, what is the role of the midfielder? So the nominees for midfield: David Fitzgerald of Clare, Ryan Taylor of Clare, Tom Monaghan of Galway, Dar Fitzgibbon of Cork, well, William Donoghue of Limerick, and Adrian Mullen of Kilkenny. Mullen's in your team, and Joseph Cooney's in your team. Yeah, I've gone. I've gone a bit rogue there. I've You're going to get in trouble here now. Yeah, not, not nominated in midfield, <laughs> but uh, uh, well, it's, uh, the thing is, right? He played half back at times. He played midfield at times. And he played half forward at times. Um, midfield is not that definite. Like to be honest, Adrian Mullen didn't play midfield a lot of time for Kilkenny either. He no. played half forward. He was an outlet at middle of the field when they were breaking out of defence, but he wasn't playing midfield a lot of times. So to me, midfield is, is fluid enough. This is the one where. 
I've probably gone for personal preference here uh, rather than what I actually think it will be I think more than likely David Fitzgerald will get picked midfield alongside Adrian Mullen which I just thought Joe, Joseph Cooney had an unbelievable year um, getting on the scoreboard a lot and he's a real utility player as well when when uh, Gerard McInerney went off in the All-Ireland quarterfinal he went back centre-back and just slotted in seamlessly uh, I thought he was brilliant Jerry's very good against Limerick as well but he's unlikely to get it well that's the thing isn't it so if you if you do really well and you, you're like a Jenga piece or a, um, a Swiss army knife that they, they move around then you, you get punished when it comes to the selection for this mm-hmm. and that's also not fair like I don't know is there a way around this where you know there's a mark given properly that takes into account possessions blocks hooks you know how often you are free on the ball as opposed to like have this good instinct he showed up on the highlights I know what you mean trying to add a bit of science to this it's, but it's impossible it's, and, it, and it's adding science to what's such a subjective exercise really and it does come down to personal preference and personal I'll opinion take the fun out of it too much science <laughs> take the fun out of it you need a bit of artistic poetic license and kind of pick your own people like you know I put, I put together a piece last year on the, the goalkeeping position and got a lot of really interesting stats to show who should have been the all-star goalkeeper and I thought it was and I've Brilliant time for Owen Murphy. I think he's probably the best keeper of his generation. But you know, a lot of the stats pointed in Nicky Quaid's favour, particularly with what he was doing when he had the ball in his hand, and he didn't get the All Star. <laughs> so yeah, well, so Cooney could get out of the reckoning because he was man of the match at centre back. Maybe not have been man of the match, but it was sensational there. But it's like, well, he didn't do his best stuff at centre back, and we can't put him in centre back. Yeah, can't yeah, put yeah. him in midfield because he was you know, like. But if yeah. Colin Cavanagh can get picked in the football the full back a number of years ago, then. Why can't they? they? I mean, they can switch it around. I think when that happened, I think there's license to put anybody anywhere. Really, <laughs> yeah. like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So you think it's going to be David Fitzgerald and Adrian Mullen? Adrian Mullen close enough to a shoe in? Oh, he's an absolute shoe in. Yeah, uh, probably had a quiet All Ireland final by his standards, but before that, um, he I think he must have had the goods of about twenty points from playing this year's championship. He's there, was, there was pressure on him. Like I definitely remember pre pre um, tournament, we were talking. I think it was um, with Paul Murphy, and it was like. Been a lot of talk about Adrian Mullen. He's been injured for a while. This is it now. He needs to stand up and be one of the leaders of the team. And then, like, three, four points from play every game. Yeah. Showing for ball and actually really stood up to it. Yeah. And, like, he's probably what's he's probably the one player that's going to lead Ballyhale, I'd say, forward for the next 10 years as well. I was chatting Jackie Tyrrell about this and he was kind of saying, when you look at the, the Ballyhale journey, he said it started with Henry. would say the relatively recent generation has passed on to TJ and he thinks it's passed on to Adrian Mullen now. And you're talking about pressure being on him. Like, he's what? He's, no more than 23 I'd yeah, say yeah. like it's mad like really can I go to bat for Willa Donoghue here like Napier Sig and Limerick people are going to be uh, getting in touch like he's he's unbelievable uh, the John O'Shea potentially of this all-star selection fairly underrated um, probably should get one but will he I think you've even done him a disservice there. Uh, Patrick, yeah. Patrick Vieira is what I'd nearly yeah, associate yeah. more with. And this is another thing. I think Willow Dunne, who's the best midfielder in the country. Right. But I don't necessarily think he was the best midfielder. This, like, I think he's head and shoulders above the rest of the midfielders in the country, if I'm honest. But again, he does a lot of the, of the less glamorous work, shall we say. He does a lot of the spoiling. Yeah. Um, need, we need a science to take that yeah. into account. Now, like, I, now, I think yeah. he did the same last year, but was probably more effective, if you get me. Um, but... I take your point Shane if they're looking at picking definitely an out and out midfielder who definitely played midfield all year there's a possibility that he could slip in there definitely and like 
I've went to bat for him more than anybody. Like he was, he was absolutely uh, robbed in 2020 of an All Star. Uh, so he definitely should have two to three under his belt already. Uh, that wouldn't be a massive departure if they picked him. But on this year's form, I'm not sure. Do you think the All Star committee picks uh, based on that? Like even Thomas Sullivan has two already, so they're thinking, oh, maybe we'll we'll give someone else one, and will it will? I mean. You know, could they give one to him this year, given that he, he did miss out, as you say, in years where he probably could have got one? Do you think that comes into the reckoning at all, like the, or is it solely based on the year? We never know. We don't know the behind the scenes how these are things are picked. But uh, I've, I've talked to some people who've been in the room. Of course, yeah. Apparently, it's less it's less fractious than it used to be because they can't smoke anymore, and I'm not sure they can drink anymore. <laughs> no, they <laughs> right? can't. No, no, they can't. Crack no. Sure, yeah. Back in the day, apparently, it was um, they would have lasted. A long time. Yeah, but we're all, Shane, on that point, we're all, like, human. Like, the same as referees, like, yeah. you know, it's very easy to, you know, think of that. Oh, he missed out. Maybe we, we were wrong a couple of years ago, you know. That's that's the way life works. Like, Yeah, yeah I, I, my, my biggest thing for all this is, uh, I thought Aidan Omani was in the, should have been in the conversation for Man of the Match in the All-Ireland Final when he marked uh, Michael Murphy out. Oh, yeah. Didn't get a mention. Didn't get an All-Star that year. And I'm like, that's the hardest job. M- Murphy at that stage was the best footballer in the country. Mm had not the impact in the Ireland final that he should have had because somebody does one job better than anybody else is able to do it. That, for me, is an all-star. And it's, it's your point about like that unseen stuff. And that's where there's no science to this. But if your job is to find space and you're actually the extra forward who plays as a third midfielder yeah. and you're scoring three or four points, maybe you should be scoring seven points. <laughs> do you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you yeah. Have, you have... You have 12 chances and you score 4 points and everyone's like yeah but we forget the wides really yeah yeah but I, I'm going to always bat like as a cornerback down through my years like unless someone watches a game close to you you never get any credit yeah. so I'd always bat for the lads who do the less glamorous jobs <laughs> and would say the likes of an O'Donoghue or an Aidan O'Mahony that's the reason Kerry probably won the All-Ireland lads in 2014 realistically like yeah. and unless you're looking close to the ad and you see how he's spoiling how he's tracking every run you're not going to take into account just how good he was on that given day that, that sort of thing annoys me I have to say the half forward line you've got Garrod Hegarty Kyle Hayes and Shane O'Donnell I think maybe people are sleeping a little bit on how good Shane O'Donnell was this year as well. O'Donnell was brilliant, particularly coming back from uh, you know his concussion issues and wondering whether he'd ever get back playing club hurling, let alone county hurling. Uh, again, when they were struggling, like he was brilliant when they were going well, and that's fine. But I'd always look at a guy when their team isn't going particularly well. They were struggling against Wexford in that quarter final. He came up with three to four points at the end of that game. You know they were being tanked by Kilkenny in the other semi final, and he was still the one that was taking it to them. Um, I think he's an absolute chew in, I have to say. And obviously, Hegarty scored 1 5 in the All Ireland final, was in the reckoning before that. He scored 3 14 from playing his last three All Ireland final appearances, has saved the best to last. Uh, that All Ireland final display this year, I'd put up against any display in an All Ireland final just for from second one to the last second, it was near perfection. And then you're looking at Kyle Hayes, who like Kyle Hayes is the best wing back in the country at seven. Like he, Dermot Burns offers one thing, Hayes offers a completely different. Thing. He's a marauding wing back, but he went up centre forward. And just like in 2018 when he got Young Hurler of the Year, like he was one of the big one of the big differences. Like I think he had four points in the All Ireland final as well. Is there anybody close? Tom Morris, he's always close in in that sector. Again, another guy who. Uh, probably he's not been talked about this year as much because he wasn't on the scoreboard maybe as much as he as he had been. He's definitely he's definitely close and in the reckoning there. But I, you know, 
Shane O'Donnell is probably the one that some people would question, but to me, I think he's I think he's a lock. I have to say. Okay, uh, the full forward line is Tony Kelly. You've gone for TJ Reid and Aaron Galan. So TJ's a nominee for Hurler of the Year. So that's he's definitely going to be an All Star. Yeah, definitely. And uh, Galan was in the conversation uh, coming into the All Ireland final before he was you know quiet by his standards, but still ended up with three points. And just because people would say Tony Kelly didn't play corner forward, well, he played corner forward or full forward in some games, but again. Very few teams play three inside now. So he's coming out. Yeah. He's coming out to the half line. He's coming out to midfield. And people would say maybe TJ didn't play inside. He played inside enough. He played corner forward in the All-Ireland Final for large, large stages. And Galan was nearly always inside. Um, Galan's just so dangerous in the air. It's funny, I was chatting Kieran Carey about this recently. He said that Aaron Galan wasn't actually that good in the air until he really went after that. He was obviously good at ball on the ground and they really went after it uh, after it in training with the well with Patrick Swell and he just he just got it really really yeah. quickly and now he's probably you know one of the best in the air and he just drifts in behind and if you let him drift in behind and he catches it's probably a goal straight away OK who's close in that full forward line then that might get in ahead of well is it Tony Kelly who, who's at danger here Tony Kelly is probably the one most at risk I would say um, Connor Whelan for Galway wouldn't be a million miles away uh, just probably because they were beaten in Leinster and didn't make it to the All-Ireland Final he's probably going to be overlooked but he, he had some great tallies particularly he was very good in that Leinster Final when nobody else was playing well until Hugh Lawler literally knew all I need to do is shut this man down somewhat and nobody else is going to contribute because that's what happened on the day and Kilkenny yeah. won the game he won't be far away Desi Hutchinson won't be, won't be one that anyone's really going to be talking about but Waterford had a terrible championship and he'd a brilliant championship he scored he scored five from playoff Sean Finn when they played um, and he got six points in their last game as Clare when nobody else performed they probably won't be talked about but they definitely deserve to be in the conversation Hurler of the Year's Dimmer Burns for you the nominees TJ Reid Dimmer Burns Barry Nash yeah I think Burns hit 36 points over the course of the summer um, and I remember down in Limerick it was literally Burns scoring one end uh, down in Clare I should say Burns scoring one end Kelly scoring the other end it was just a game uh, basically a game on the scoreboard between a wing back and you know the best forward in the country yeah um, and you know he had a really solid All Ireland final, and I think I think he yeah I think he's I'd be very surprised if it was anybody anybody else. The young hurler of the year, Mikey Butler, Owen Cody, and Kieran Joyce are the nominees. So you would expect because they reached the All Ireland final that it's going to be between Butler and Cody, is it? Yeah, Cody would uh, would do something that I don't think anybody else has done. He'd be hurt, young hurler of the year three years in a row if he does win it. They changed it. Excuse me. They changed it to under twenty two this year because. Um, probably the amount of candidates or sorry it's uh, yeah it's under 22 uh, because the amount of candidates maybe at that age weren't particularly big up until this year and then this year we had plenty of candidates it's just the way it works because maybe lads are making an impact in inter-county at a, a bit of an older age now but my worry is and I know Will O'Callaghan's probably looking I'd be wor- worried that there's going to be this Montreal screw job here where Mikey Butler doesn't get corner back but he gets Young Hurler of the Year as compensation <laughs> now that's not to say the Young Hurler of the Year is voted on by players but to me he's the obvious candidate and I just hope he like, gets both yeah but it's not like it's not, you know, Mikey Butler's young lad. Oh, you get one next year. We no. don't know that. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2022, to me, is the best cornerback. So he deserves to be an all-star and I think he deserves to be young hurler. Well, you could get injured, you can miss for, who knows, you know, yeah. travelling. Like. Yeah. Colin McCarthy on YouTube. Uh, Tony Kelly hasn't performed at the business end of the year, in, year uh, again in this year. No impact on the quarter or the semi-final. Well, I think he hit 
three or four. I think he had four from play in the yeah. quarter final. So that's now, not bad. Yeah, he was he was quiet by his standards, but there was generally a hangover over the whole Clare team after that Munster final. There's another thing as well, lads, is that when a team really throws it down to Limerick, they seem to be have an inability to back it up because whatever uh, whatever effort it takes if you look at Kilkenny in 2019 when they beat them the last championship defeat they've had they couldn't back it up in the All-Ireland final mm-hmm. look at Clare in the Munster final this year couldn't back it up against backed it up somewhat against Wexford uh, you know very poor against Kilkenny you look at uh, there's a couple of more teams even that have thrown it down to them and whatever it is the toll it takes yeah. they can't back it up uh, it makes sense you know they're, that's why they're the greatest team potentially of all time they're on track for it anyway they're getting there yeah Michael good stuff thanks a for joining us we'll, um, we'll find out on Friday evening exactly how those two teams match up a reminder OTBIM brought to you with Gillette in association with Movember Effortless Shave Magnificent Mo you can sign up or donate now at Movember.com up next we're live with the Shelburne Women's Assistant Manager Joey Malone ahead of an absolutely massive weekend of National League action we'll hear why with Joey before that Joe Mick and Richie were on last night's news round discussing the issue of how 15 grand simply isn't enough for the women's professional contracts in Irish rugby yeah, the IRFU reportedly struggling to get women's 15s players to accept the union's professional contract offers. Back in August, the IRFU announced it will be offering 43 centralised contracts. Those operating in the sevens programme were already under contract and it was the first time that women playing the 15s format were offered professional terms by their own union. As you mentioned, Rory O'Connor's piece claimed that of the 18 full-time contracts offered to 15s players, only seven have been taken up. Some players are believed to have been offered just €15,000 plus incentives to put pen to paper. Yeah, the €15,000 figure certainly catches the eye. Now, Rory's piece did say that uh, several players had certainly been offered uh, more money in line with what other countries were paying their female players at the moment, but certainly you're not surprised to see the uptake on giving up my professional career to take 15 grand a year has been turned down and since I think the players will have public backing and they should dig in for the best possible contracts and the IRFU will be forced to pay up. It's a ridiculous point as well for a couple of reasons but one of them is that you know this is the standard of the game so we either don't have a women's team or we have to make it professional and that has to be competitive enough for people to sign the contracts mm. and actually play. So, like, I think 15 is is an unfortunate number because those incentives, I'd imagine an awful lot of them are... It's a low end, obviously, yeah, it is. and the incentives would, you know, hopefully bring it up to some sort of, uh, you know, at least a livable wage. But, again, it's just not enough. Like, you can't expect people for the guarantee of, you know absolute poverty 15,000 uh, euro a year you can't expect them to give up uh, their their careers so you know we have to follow the standards we have to make the women's game competitive if we're going to have it at all and that's how maybe it will generate money in the future if you're looking at this as some sort of profit making endeavor which i don't think we should be it's still a sporting uh you know it, it it's we're looking at it as a it's a sporting organization it's a not for profit we just need to make sure that we have a team that's able to compete at their level you know, and it's not going to be possible without professionalism. So I think the idea about them generating money is such a red herring. I don't understand it. No, but it will be talked about. It will, and people will say it in a legitimate way. Well, should, do you get what you're bringing in? But again, that doesn't apply across the board in Irish rugby. The men's yeah, team is course, the yeah. is the generator. Uh, more from the lads, of course, on the news round tonight from seven o'clock on News Talk. Now I'm delighted to say Joey Malone is with us. He's part of the Shelburne coaching ticket that is hurtling towards the end of the Women's National League season and then the Women's Cup final the week after. Uh, exciting times, Joey. Oh, really, really exciting. I mean, I was just, uh, there's a great buzz around with the, the camp with the girls uh, training last night, and uh, I think everyone's looking forward to it. It's been a, been a long, hard season. 
but it's great to be in contention for two trophies and um, really looking forward to it. So you were league champions last year in fairly dramatic fashion on the last day of the season. Potential for Lightning to strike twice. Yeah, it's 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 great for us to be in that position now. Um, we we had a little bit of a slip up after the European uh, European campaign and, and lost a couple of points, but it's great to be going down to Wexford with a, a chance of uh, winning the league. Uh, a draw might do us, but um, certainly a win will. So, it, just for anybody who's who's um, tuning into this, and there's a good chance you'll pick up a lot of bandwagon fans uh, in the last week, given um, how exciting it is. What are the permutations? Oh, I mean, the, the, the permutations is that we, we've we've looked at the the league uh, as well as maybe about four or five weeks ago, and looked at at the way the the, the point system that was going, and we were kind of thinking that we could be going to Wexford maybe a point ahead if we can win our, our four games, and that's what we've done. Um, now we're looking at like uh, a win on Saturday. We'll definitely win win the league for us, and look, and depending on the result between Bohemians and Athlone, a draw might be enough. So you guys have fifty seven points. Wexford Youths, who you're playing, yep. have fifty six, and Athlone are on fifty five. If you guys draw, if Shells and, and Wexford draw, the, and, and Athlone win, yep. then uh, yourselves and Athlone will be on the same points. Yeah, and and that's going to be a playoff. And I believe um, they've already made a decision that's going to be the Wednesday before the cup final, which will be which will be a lot, you know. But um, at the end of the day, it's it could be Athlone on, on the Wednesday and then Athlone on Sunday in the cup final. Right. Okay. So obviously, uh, competition is really intense. P Mount, who you beat on the last day of the season last year, are only four points behind you guys at the top of the table as well. So there's obviously four really good sides in the league who've been duking it out. Yeah, I mean, look, the league had, the league has improved so much from last season. There was, a, there was three or four teams where you'd say, "Well, that's three points for you. You, know, you can beat them." And but when you look at the improvement that Athlone has made this season, what what, what great strides they've made. Um, obviously, uh, the other teams, like the Cooks, who who are poor at the start of the season, but really improved. I think the league in general is is improving immensely, and um, obviously with the, the girls qualifying for the the World Cup, it's going to enhance the league even further. And um, does I think the FEI and and the CEO Jonathan Hill and, and Max Gallon, the director of the league, um, should be looking at it now trying to get onto you to uh, UEFA, which we've been asking to deem the league a professional league, which will be which will attract players not only for us, but the other thing is to stop us losing players. We've lost seven internationals from a from a calendar year from July twenty one to July twenty two. We've lost seven full internationals out of our starting eleven. And and I think um, and they've gone for free and we mean between the UEFA and the FIFA and the FIFA compensation. I think that will stop that okay. and obviously help the league to come on. Okay, I didn't realise it. So the designation would actually mean that players wouldn't just be allowed to be cherry picked. They the the picking clubs. They're largely English clubs, I suspect. Are they? Yeah, it's it's the English. I mean, we we've lost. We just recently lost Jess Sue there in July and and uh, and Saoirse Noonan as well and, and Chloe Mustaki, who are all internationals to English clubs. And and Shelburne got no compensation fee for it, but it was in the boys' side of the game. There'll be compensation. I mean, if you look at Gavin Bazuma, who went for a couple of hundred thousand, and then all of a sudden he's, he gets a move to Southampton, and and Shamrock Rovers are, are up a million. And I think that type of money that's gone around in the in the men's game um, should be going around in the women's game as well. I mean, the, the English football league now have deemed themselves the best league in the world in women's football. So I mean, if they're going to be taking players from the likes of ourselves and and P Mount and Cork or Galway and like that, there should be some compensation. So hopefully, I mean, the, the girls qualifying for the World Cup now will we'll give the, the FAI a little bit of a push to get all this work done uh, with FIFA and UEFA. 
that sort of thing probably is crossing your mind when you have a, a, a talent like Abby Larkin in the team as well, who's 17. I mean, I know she scored the two goals against Sligo at the last day out to kind of set up this, this showdown in the final day, but yeah. hard to believe like, she's born in 2005 and yet she has had such an impact on both yourselves and the national team as well. Yeah, I mean, it's like forward to be like a full senior international at, at just turning 17. And uh, we've got like Jesse Stapleton as well, who's been in the international setup. And um, they, they've been, I mean, both of them made their debuts at 16 years of age and, and played a, a good part in us winning the league last year. And they're also playing a good part this year. And we've got young uh, Leo O'Leary and um, coming through the international setup as well. It's like she's still only 16, made a debut at 15 last year. And so we've got some good young players. Um, coming through and you know when you, when you take the amount of players that we've lost what, what a fantastic season the girls are having to be able to win the league last year lose 7 of the of, of your, your starting 11 and still be in contention for league and cup double it's a great achievement for, for, the, for the girls and obviously the, the, the coach and the management team as well they have to put all this in place so it's been it's been great season and look the young girls that are coming through and there's still more young girls coming through are under 17s are in the final on Sunday and um they, they've, they've got some decent players coming through so I think the club's in, in a good state at the moment I know Vera Powell has spoken about you know, seeing the likes of Katie McCabe and these girls on, on billboards and buses you know, in the last year yeah. or two and how they, I guess the interest has increased um, dramatically uh, have you noticed similar in terms of the Women's National League do you think interest and I know TG Carr having cameras down in matches for mm-hmm. example helps this but yeah. has the interest and uh, I guess the way in which the league is headed uh, been to your satisfaction like is, is it going in the right direction yeah I think it's going in the, in the right direction and I mean as I said obviously the, the international team is, is a great influence on, on the national league but we have noticed a difference with the supporters and even the Shells men supporters are, are, a lot of them are coming to the games I think there's about I think there's five or six buses already booked out to go to Wexford on, on Saturday so there is a, a great interest and obviously they, they, I mean the likes yourselves and the shows here and, and, and the TG Carters and, and obviously RTE too showing the, the cup final live as well it's going to be a big help to the game but I think the big influence will be the international come next May, next June when I think we might get ole 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 and all that kind of stuff going on in the pubs right around the country I think I think the Irish supporters will actually get behind the girls team and I think that we might get that kind of pubs scene again where people will be roaring and shouting at the televisions and the screens and all that type of, so yeah it's, it's just, there's a lot of influences going around at the moment and I think the, the improvement in the National League and the professionalism of the girls you know like, I mean, when you when I mean, I've coached men's teams a lot down through the years, and um, but I think the, the, the girls are, are great. They're, they they're enthusiastic and and they they put a hell of a lot into it, and they listen to you, and they take everything on board. And and I, and I think it's as I said, the, the national league can only get better. It's I think it's got better this year from from the last season, and I think there's going to be more improvement. The likes of Bohemians, um, Sean Warren there, and Graham Kelly at uh, DLR will certainly be pushing again to try to get into that top three or top four. And obviously you've got the, the Cork, Cork influence as well and Galway and it's good to see that Galway got themselves sorted out as well for next season What uh, what do you think is the, the biggest level of improvement where is it coming from is it just the, the quality of preparation and the the professionalism in the, the backroom teams like because you know the Galway situation was um, was definitely something that kind of raised the, the profile of how difficult it's going to be into the future to make sure that everything washes its face and pays for itself but at the same time once that starts to happen the standard begins to, to rise yeah I, I think it's I mean what you've said the first part was I mean the preparation and the professionalism of that preparation and I also I also believe that you you need the likes of the owners like Andrew Doyle at Shelburne and, and the, the CEO David Connor. I mean they've put the resources in place for for us to to 
to make it as professional as we can and I think obviously Damien Duff coming into the men's senior team as manager has helped the club as well and I mean what a fantastic season it is for the club to have two, two teams in the cup finals and I think it can, that can only get better we can only get better um, by first of all maybe trying to keep our players a little bit longer you know and stop the, the players going, going to England maybe the professionalism needs to come into the girls even a little bit more where we can have them on at least part time professional contracts yeah and to, to stop this, the drain of the of the quality players going out of the league. I mean, if you look, as I said, over the last two seasons now, we've lost seven internationals. And there's a couple of club, clubs in the league would have lost one or two players for different reasons. So, I think um, the preparation and the professionalism that is there at the moment can improve. And once that improves, I think the level the level of the standard of the league will improve, and you'll probably have six teams not just two or three yeah, looking for, the, for to be the top of the leagues or going for the trophies. When somebody like Heather O'Reilly um, comes over to play with you guys and there's just kind of relatively global attention, American um, uh, sports media were interested in, okay, that's a bit random, uh, Olympic winner, World Cup winner, World Cup winner. <laughs> coming, to, coming to play, coming out of retirement to play. What was that like? It was it was unreal. You know, like I think the girls were, were amazed by the whole thing and... Uh, when Heather arrived on, on, the, on the day she did arrive, uh, to, we obviously the, the cameras were out and um, RTE were there and, and TV3 and, and yourselves and at News Talk. Were, it was it was kind of high profile stuff to have have such a player, such stature coming to play for Shelbourne. Um, certainly, certainly improved um, the profile of the club, and and she didn't come just to be just to be like that, just as a as a. Like something just to, to improve the profile of the club. She came to play and and, and played well, and uh, obviously scored a goal in Europe for us as well. Um, and, and players like her coming to the league um, will certainly be a great boost. And we were already talking to her about some players as well that that she could maybe do a job for us. And when she does go back to America, that she could look out for players for us. And um, I think that's that bringing that type of player into into any club is obviously going to raise the profile and and she's fantastic with the girls she's she's uh, she's unbelievable in the dressing room and that training sessions and and uh, certainly the young players that that are there at the moment are looking up to her and I think when she arrived I think everyone just looked up to her it's amazing amazing to have a player like her coming to play for us yeah the long term impact of the on the culture of like the younger players seeing that and and realizing that like uh you you're you're not that far away from players who have been at the very top of the game in terms of your own game and your own ambition. Yeah, I think that's when when, when Noel King took the job and, and asked me to come along and, and we sat down last year and we, we said, look, we, we you know to bring the, the club where we want to bring it to, we, we want to bring the club to, to not only to win in leagues but to, to actually doing well in, in European competition. Winning the league last year was probably a little year ahead of schedule and um, which was great. And so we, we got the European adventure and we've learned from it. And, and I think our, our goal now is, is to win the league now, have a go at Europe, getting into the, the group stages, which will obviously um, bring more profile to the club and and bring a little bit more professionalism as well. And, 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 and people out there, really the good players around around, the, around Europe or even around the world, will know that. I mean, Shelburne are a team that would be, it'd be worth playing for. So that's that's where we are. And that's where we are in our plan. Uh, for our, it was kind of twenty one to twenty five type of plan. So and now it's when we when we got it under under um, 
when we got the European venture last year, it came as I said, it came a little bit early. But that's what that's our plan for the future. Hopefully, that we can put a team out there that will obviously not only do well at home but do well internationally as well. There must be some balls around the club, Joey, when you consider your, the women's team success and you've Damien Duff uh, doing good things with the men's team as well. Like, is there much uh, crossover and support between between Duffer's team and, and the, the women's team as well? Yeah, it's, there's not a lot because obviously they train most of the mornings and we train we, we train three nights a week. Our, our session is Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and we play Saturday. And then obviously the, the, the men's team are training their full time um, but I, mean, I know Damien is is is, uh, is always like he's he's tries to get to a couple of our games and I'm sure he'll be at our cup final as well he was at our cup final last year and I'm sure himself and, and, and the lads would um, be giving the, sending best wishes to the girls and that type of stuff so um, and obviously we, we'll be doing the same for them they'll be coming to our final I hope I hope a lot of the lads will come to our final oh sorry they won't be able to because they're playing a match that day which is <laughs> a little bit unusual for to have a match on, matches on the same day as the women's cup final but um, but I mean, I'm no doubt they'll be sending the best wishes. And Damien is a great influence around the club. Like he's 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 well, like what a player he was, what a fantastic international player he was as well. And it's great to have him at Shelburne. And uh, and as I said, fair play to Andrew Doyle and and the, the, the owners and directors and, yeah. and uh, David Connor for bringing them. The um, the atmosphere at Talca is carried right across the north side of the city. Whenever um, the men's team are playing at the moment, there's been kind of an awakening of the club since relegation and since the. Uh, Save Talca Park movement kind of that was a proper grassroots movement that obviously the, the club needed to reflect and put uh, structures in place it, it feels like there's a proper community vibe about the club at the moment yeah there's a fantastic community vibe around, around the club and, and I think you know, for, for certainly in the last year or two, they've got the academies right, both the, the, the men's and the, and the women's and the young kids and the academies coming through is very professional um, they they a lot of the younger teams when we were training in the AOL they they were all up there as well and, and I think the the whole I think I think the, the local community all around has, has has kind of bought into what Shelburne are trying to do and and keeping Tolka Park I think is is a major, major thing step for the club and um Hopefully they they'll be able to get the money to uh, improve the ground to, to certain sections of the ground that needs to be improved. But um, overall, I think the club is in is in good hands at the moment, and uh, uh, the only way is up. And, and I think the, the, the senior men's team will it will it's a great season for them. They've they've a mid table position, and I think they'll they'll get a couple of players in that would could be challenging for trophies next year. So and, and I think the women's the women's section of the of the game of the club is is very strong. We've got some very good young underage managers as well, and some good. Coaches come through, and um, and we've got some players in the team that are uh, getting it just over toward you are doing their coaching badges as well, and, and I'm sure they'll be they'll be working with the club for the next few years. Even when they do stop playing, they'll be they'll be taking up coaching roles. When you're talking there, Joey, about uh, Abby Larkin and the young players and trying to nurture them and bring them through, like uh, you, you might tell us a little bit about uh, <clears throat> good friend of yours, Paul McGrath, and and you know from your own career, was it Charlie Walker? Yeah, Charlie, Charlie. Um, I was captain of, of Pats. We, we played in the cup final in 1980 and then uh, we were beaten by Warford. And then the following pre-season, uh, Charlie made me captain and he brought this young black lad in into the dressing room and uh, very short and very quiet. And he said, he just and he said, he said look, came over to me and said, look, I want you to look after him. And so like, I immediately went over and started talking to him and brought him in. And he said, as I said, he was very quiet and shy and, and there. And he played like we, Charlie was played him centre forward at first, and and then played him in centre midfield, and he was just doing okay in in those two positions. And um, there was one game we were playing; I think it was we were home to Limerick, and, and you know, you know, at the top of Pat's way, you'd go down the steps to the dressing room, the old way into the old dressing rooms, and 
Charlie called me and he said, look, he said, um, the lad McGrath, he's, he hasn't been doing great and all that. And I, I said, Charlie, you're playing him in the wrong position. Play him centre half with me. He needs someone talking to him in his ear and that type of stuff. And Charlie said to me, well, if he doesn't do it today, he's on his bike. <laughs> that was the, club, the, club, the board of directors are not happy. And, but he, he came and played centre half that day with me and, and um, he was immense. He was fantastic. And, uh, Straight away? He, oh, that first game? Just, I mean, he, a centre forward, he, he didn't do great. At midfield, he didn't do great. But then when he played centre-half, like he was a big storm. His headers used to go 30, 40 yards up the pitch and his reading of the game was, was fantastic. And then he had me shouting in his ear behind him at the time. So anything he didn't get, I cleaned up at the back and made the, made the sweeper's job nice and handy <laughs> having Paul McGrath in front of you. And he, he just went from he, from that game on, he, he just went, he was immense. He was getting player of the months and uh, his tackling, his, his famous tackling was someone getting ahead of him and then just getting around him, the win, winning the ball and player would go up in the air and over and off he'd come and he, he he became like he became an unbelievable player within within a couple of weeks and like, that quick yeah he kind of got from that stage where Charlie was saying well if he's not doing it today he's on his bike to um, how long can we being, keep him being like all of a sudden he's getting player of the month and English clubs are interested in him and all that time. and I, I said it to Charlie a few weeks later I said we won't have him for long I said like there's, there's definitely only English clubs taking him and he was a Chelsea supporter but he um Man United were, were interested in him and, and I think uh, there was one or two other clubs uh, interested in him as well and, and obviously you know we know he, he went to Manchester United but he How was, long was he at Pats? I don't know He, he was literally a, a season um, a season and a bit I think yeah a season and a bit and then all of a sudden it's it's Manchester United and um, but then like I was on the phone to him all the time and he was at, over to Manchester and he told me like they, they're not paying me much more than I'm getting uh, between his job here in, in Dublin and his job with it uh, and the few bobbies getting all pats man you know weren't offering him much much more <laughs> which seemed a little bit crazy to me and, and I was because Charlie had gone over and the chairman had gone over and I said well, make sure he's looking after him and get him a good deal and um, but um, Ron Axon came into the room and, and um, after they had a chat and they talked about the money and all that type of stuff he said um, he said oh well if you, you want to go back to Pats and he went that was the only word he said to him and he, and he went no 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 so <laughs> he obviously agreed to sign then but look he he, he was always going to be <clears throat> excuse me he was always going to be a top player um, and his, his rise his rise to start and what didn't take too long and I mean, obviously the Manchester United crowd talked to him a big time and um, and then obviously like the few years at Manchester United he, he had a bit of success and I went to the, to the Forge Cup final he had sent me tickets over he sent me but I went over and, and, and unfortunately other things happened as we all know like uh, along the way the, the, the kind of drinking thing and himself and Norman Whiteside and Alex Ferguson didn't like it and um, I don't think he was, I think he knew he wasn't going to be too long there at Manchester once Alex Ferguson took over and um, he, he he phoned me one day one night and said that Alex Ferry wants him to uh, because of all his knee injuries and all that to to actually go to like maybe pack in the game and, and take out the insurance and all that type of stuff and I said to him, don't you dare do that you know like you've still a lot of years to go especially with the international team as well and and um, with that um, Graham Taylor from Aston Villa came in from and like what a, what an unbelievable five seasons after like first three or four seasons with Aston Villa like yeah. Uh, like when I was in his house, like he, he, like the amount of player man of the match trophies that he has around the place from playing for Aston Villa, and he obviously got player of the year as well in England. So, he, and then went on to play such a starting role in the ni- 1990 and 1994 World Cups and for for Ireland. And 
you know, as I said, on one hand you had Alex Rajan asking him to retire, and then in the second, it's like all of a sudden he's he's winning Player of the Year in England. He's player the best player for Ireland in the World Cup, and um, he, he's he's had an unbelievable career despite all the, all the problems he's had along the way. Um, he's had an unbelievable career, and he's you know when when you talk about some of the best players that's ever played for Ireland, he'll certainly be in in that top ten. I'd say. I'd say he's at the top. <laughs> I'd say he's right there at Roy Keane because of what he did yeah. in the World Cups, you know, like and because because of the, the problems, the, the knee injuries and all that. Like, um, I yeah, he's had, he's had a lot. I mean, he, you know, to, to amount of problems that he's had with his knee and, and you, you know, at Aston Villa, he, he spent more time in the gym than he did on the pitch because it was always and they looked after him really well and like he, he was kind of wrapped in cotton wool type of stuff. That's the way they, they treated him at Aston Villa and. Um, there was uh, there was a lot of games where where he didn't he didn't feel right with his knee and you know the physio had done a bit of walking him and he'd say I don't know what I can play today and the physio would talk him and no you're okay and he'd get man of the match yeah. you know that type of stuff so he he's um, he the, I think the problems with the knees and 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 obviously his his uh, his early up coming up as a kid in the foster homes and all that you know there was a, there was a lot for to do what he done coming through all that kind of foster home situation and that type of stuff um, was, was immense and it, what, what a great story and I think most people that would have read his book would know that like it wasn't always like sunshine and glory it, there was mm. a lot of hard times along the way and, and for him to, to overcome all that and be the player he was it was fantastic In terms of the, the best players you played against like I was looking at um, your time with Dundalk yeah. 87 Ajax yeah, with the Cup Winners Cup champions. Like I, was, I was looking at the Ajax team there last night. <laughs> I mean, Van Basten, yeah. uh, Frank Reichardt, a seventeen-year-old Brian Roy, yeah. like forty odd thousand people there as well. Like, what, what was that experience? Oh, like it was unbelievable. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was the one time in, in, in like a day you get as a League of Ireland player to be a full-time player for a week because you're going away early in the week and you're, you're staying in nice hotels and you're training and in the daytime rather than two nights a week and the Saturday morning and playing Sunday. It was like. Uh, it was us being professional week, and then when when we went when we when we drew Ajax, we said, "Yo, and Cruyff to manager, and, and all the players you're talking about, Frank Rijkaard. I think Dennis Bergkamp was only a sub, mm. uh, and uh, but we we trained the night before on the pitch, and it was like someone was at the knitting all the grass together. It was it was so tight and so lovely. It was like a carpet, and we because we were we were playing. Sometimes you could play in our season, and you go down to Warford, Kilcona Park, and there'd be muck, <laughs> and you you put your foot in, and your, your football boot would nearly come off. And <laughs> so to come to this fantastic manicured pitch was unreal. And then um, we we played obviously the next night, and it was the first time I've seen you know, these big flags that come down on the top of the heads of people and behind one of the goals, it nearly takes up the whole stand. And yeah. It was like it was amazing to see this coming through, and then. Well, you know, all of a sudden we're, we're, we're playing against these unbelievable international. I mean, they had eight full-time international, full Holland internationals in their starting eleven, and it was like Roy Card was unreal, and and uh, Alan Muren was playing, who had been at Man United. <laughs> right. And, um, Roy Card one side, and Muren in the centre, and then you had Naiskins and Van Skip, and like oh, un- unreal. And uh, the the captain of Holland was 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 the captain of Ajax as well, and it was like, but it was like. They had the ball all the time. We we were just defending. I think I headed about three hundred balls out, like diving <laughs> headers and this because uh, they'd come to the end of our box and, and they wouldn't shoot. They'd go out wide and get in and try get because we were tight with, with with nearly all eleven ten players and Alan O'Neill right in, nearly in the eight in our box. And but we, to be fair to us, we we done really well. I think it was like twenty 
nil all with 23 minutes to go and a half time nil all going in that the, the fans were booing them and right because uh, they were the, the previous uh, European Cup winners cup they won it that and they brought the, the trophy out on the pitch before the game and all that so here we are playing against one of the top teams in Europe and we're nil all at half time and it's now it's tough but it's uh, it was great and then obviously the the, the first goal was a an OG hit off the back of Roy Carter to Sean hit off Larry Wise's ankle and spun up and you couldn't have placed it in the top corner as to where it went to and that was the first goal that broke it and um, I think Frank Stabling got either the second or the third Frank Stabling only had time for them that season they got a second or third and uh, we ended up losing 4-0 but it was only in the in the last like as I said 22 I think it was 62rd or 64th, 67th minute when they got what they got the goal, the first goal. So, but it was it was great. It was great to play in a, in a stadium like that against a team like that. And and obviously they, they bet us two 0 Another OG Paul knew with a, a twenty yard back pass over <laughs> Alan O'Neill's head in the in the game in Oriel Park. We lost a two 0 But like a great experience. I mean Europe. I mean you can see Shamrock Rovers present at the moment. I mean what it's, what it's done for them and how it's brought the club on and. Um, I think I was just reading in, in, in the past coming in the car Shelburne back in in, in the, the was it the two thousand and the, the the run they had and the money that I brought into the club and yeah the Deportivo yeah you know, Deportivo yeah and it was like they were so close and like European money now is is big and it helps to develop the League of Ireland clubs big time and and I think that's where 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 Shelburne now need to be, they need to be. I mean, that's the next move for Damien now to bring players in that will get them into that U- European stages, and then uh, obviously we ourselves with the women. That's what we want as well. We want to be. I mean, if we'd have qualified for the European stages this year, I think we would have brought half a million mm. just for quali- qualifying for the stages. So yeah. that half a million coming into the women's game would, would be unbelievable, and, and would help us get. The goal we, we've, as I said, we've we've a plan to bring us twenty four to twenty five, and I think. Bring, Qualifying for Europe and bringing that type of money into the women's section of the game, we transformative, really. Yeah, big yeah. time. I mean, and you're, you're talking about when I mean, we Noel has got good contacts from his time as manager of uh, the women's senior team and the men's under twenty ones, and he's, he's obviously done the senior men's team for a couple of games. So he's got some contacts around around Europe where all of a sudden, instead of us losing players you're that is players draining in. the league of Ireland of good quality players, we could not alone if we lose them, we can bring some in and we can have talks with, with the likes of Man United or Man City or Liverpool or Arsenal even to players that are on the fringe that we could be coming towards we can't even bring players in on loan from clubs like that because we're not a professional league right so the first thing that the FAI and Mark uh, Scanlon and, and Jonathan Hill needs to do and we, as I said to you earlier in, in, in the chat that they need to deem the, the league professional so that we the, the, the kind of kind of plan that we have for Shelbourne can be achieved and, 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 and even further are they close to doing that are, are they well, listening they, to you they, when you they, say yeah, that to them they've been said they're saying they're talking they have it in the process is, is in place but I'm saying well, why is it taking so long I mean for me it should be just send a letter to no, we, we've decided be, this yeah. I think in this day and age it should be that simple that you you're, you're, you kind of fill out a form send it to UEFA we want to deem the, the Women's National League a professional league and and let us get on with it then because we want our teams to be able to achieve uh, like high positions in Europe not only that but we also want we also want another competition for the women's football I mean the men's have three competitions they've got the, the European the Champions League the, the 
conference the league. The UEFA and league, the and, league and the conference yeah. league as well. So, and the, the women only have one. So, I mean, whoever finishes runners up in our league should be going into a European competition. Whoever wins our FAI Cup should be going into a, a European competition. And that's where the, the FAI need, need to be. They need to be having those conversations so that we can bring this league on. I mean, those, those, uh, Story I read in, in one of the UA or the FAI, it was a UA for conference, and the a, a past player in England, probably a well known player, I can remember her name at the moment, but she said the the only reason why they have, they are hosting the European and winning the European uh, Nations League at women's level was because they deemed that the league professional. Up to that, you had girls getting a bus, to, you know, and, and getting a bus to to train them. Paying, paying fees and paying subs at, at Arsenal and Man City and yeah. clubs like that. She said, "No, since we we made the league professional league, we are now the best league in the world." And we, I'm not saying that the the national league in Ireland is going to be one of the best leagues well, in the world, it, it, but, it along but we can that. certainly come along and and keep our players here, keep our best players here, which will help the international team. And, and also bring players in from, from abroad to help us achieve our goal, which is to qualify for the European stages the, of the, the league stages of the Champions League. Yeah. You're a bit of a legend in, in Monaghan, Joey, as well. I know uh, in my, that's my home club, Monaghan. Oh, yeah. But uh, the Billy Baxter line <laughs> yeah, is still up Billy there. Yeah, Billy Baxter days. Uh, what happened, I was actually at the start of the season. It was a mad season. I left Galway uh, as player manager. I, I um, went to Longford. And then uh, Warford asked me, Alfie Hale asked me, would I go to Warford halfway through the season? Well, about a way through the season. And I went to Warford. And then they ran into financial difficulties with it. So with about two months ago, um, it was it was in the papers that I had to leave Warford because they couldn't afford to, to uh, with the finance and stuff. So Billy Baxter rang me and I went to Monaghan. And we ended up uh, qualifying or getting promoted to the to the Premier Division that, that year. Um, and that season was the, the fourth season. They tried the six and six. Do you remember that? Can they, where yeah, they yeah. Won the, yeah. Probably don't remember it was like uh, they they split the like league. The SPL. Monaghan was Monaghan was great. It was it was great. It was um, unbelievable volunteer workers. You know, I mean, it's it's great to, when you go to clubs like that. The amount of volunteer workers that that give their time and all it was fantastic. But it's a pity Monaghan didn't didn't stay in the league because um, they were they were very, they were a good club to play for. Joey, great stuff. We could listen to you all day. Thanks a million. That <laughs> yeah, was brilliant. That's football, isn't very, it? Very wide ranging. But um, I think that that passionate call for the FAI to make the league professional is something we'll definitely follow up on so best of luck this week and then in the cup final as well whatever yeah, happens yeah I really appreciate it. if you keep that up it'll be great you know that's um, it's, uh, it's, it's something that I think will, will certainly be worthwhile for the league definitely it's an yeah. important story as well OTBM brought to you live with Gillette in association with Movember effortless shave magnificent mo. you can sign up or donate now at movember.com after the break sports writer Paddy Agnew will tell us why you had to be there stay tuned there are universal values that should define football Values such as respect, dignity, trust, and courage. When we represent our nation, we aspire to embody these values. As PFA members, we understand the power of collective bargaining and the fundamental rights of all workers to form and join a union. Before players had won these rights, their careers in Australia were characterised by the absence of respect and dignity. It is for these reasons we must speak about the situation in Qatar. Over the last two years, we have been on a journey to understand and learn more about the situation in Qatar. We are not experts, but we have listened to groups such as Amnesty, FIFA, the Supreme Committee, the International Labour Organization, FIFPRO, and most importantly, the migrant workers of Qatar. We have learned that progress has been made both on paper and in practice. The kafala system has largely been dismantled, working conditions have improved, and a minimum wage has been established. Whilst the reforms established in Qatar are an important and welcome step, 
Their implementation remains inconsistent and requires improvement. We have learned that the decision to host the World Cup in Qatar has resulted in the suffering and in the harm of countless of our fellow workers. These migrant workers who have suffered are not just numbers. Like the migrants that have shaped our country and our football, they possess the same courage and determination to build a better life. As players, we fully support the rights of the LGBTI plus people. But in Qatar, people are not free to love the person that they choose. Addressing these issues is not easy and we do not have all the answers. We stand with Faith Pro, the Building and Woodworkers International and the International Trade Union Confederation seeking to embed reforms and establish a lasting legacy in Qatar. This must include establishing a migrant resource centre, effective remedy for those who have been denied their rights and the decriminalisation of all same-sex relationships. These are the basic rights that should be afforded to all and will ensure continued progress in Qatar. This is how we can ensure a legacy that goes well beyond the final whistle of the 2022 FIFA World Cup. One that football can truly be proud of. One that football can truly be proud of. One that football can be truly proud of. One that football can truly be proud of. One that football can truly be proud of. It's so unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. You had to be there. Right, I'm very excited about this. Paddy Agnew joins us for this week's episode of You Had to Be There. Paddy, how are you? Good morning, Jer. I'm sorry, we're, we're a bit late here. We got carried away there with the stories of um, Paul McGrath's first defensive centre-back partnership, which um, is a little slice of history. You have many slices of history in your five selections here, and uh, I'm very, very jealous, particularly the early ones here. Your first yeah. one is Diego Maradona in Naples. Yeah. In April yeah. in 1987, a game against Fiorentina. Tell us about this. Yeah. Well, I mean, I picked all, all these things, Jer, uh, obviously, because they were all, uh, they weren't just good games. They were games that, uh, in some shape, marked a, on a historic moment in, uh, in, in football. And for me also, there, you know, I think we all tend to feel the things that we saw when we were young. Uh, we're always better than anything you see today. Uh, so they have huge significance for me because I spent a lot of those early uh, years uh, following uh, Diego Armando Maradona down in Naples. Now, now that day, the day of, uh, we're talking about May 1987, uh, I remember um, as we uh, pulled into the train station in uh, Naples, I was uh, sitting in a carriage with a couple of American tourists, and they looked out the window and said, oh, goodness, what's happening? You know, uh, because the entire Naples was um, decorated in blue uh, flags, and uh, we had uh, big posters all over the place saying, we are the champions. I mean, they weren't actually the champions yet, but they were taking it for granted they were going to win. Uh, and, you know, the, the atmosphere... It, it, I think it's only fair to say that not since the American troops arrived at the end of the Second World War in 1945 had you seen uh, a more uh, significant day in uh, Neapolitan history because uh, they were uh, about to win their first ever title uh, and it was a sort of coming of age and uh, uh, for uh, an always underprivileged South and particularly uh, uh, a city like Naples never come close to uh, winning a uh, title. When when did you move to to Italy, Paddy? 
Well, I moved to Italy in uh, 1986, December 85, January 1986. Uh, and, you know, Maradona was already there and he was already doing extraordinary things. And it was very, very quickly became, you know, the biggest story, that, uh, uh, by far the biggest football story that I covered uh, in those years. Am I right in saying that your main beat was actually like the Vatican and Italian politics, but the football was kind of a sideline that you managed to turn into a much more important part of your role? No, it wasn't. I mean, I was um, not quite right because I, I had been the sports editor of the Sunday Tribune in Dublin. I'd written about sport for McGill uh, and uh, I'd started off as a sports journalist. Um, but, you know, since I, when, you're, when you're living as a freelance in a place like Italy, uh, you're going to sell what stories you can sell. And um, uh, I'd chosen to come here because I thought, well, there'd be a lot of interest in Italian football. But I had also thought, yeah, there could be a bit of interest in, in the Vatican. And yeah, I, as, as the years gone by, um, I've uh, done an awful lot of politics and news stories and Vatican stories. You caught the... Uh, it was a good time to move to, to, to Naples, Paddy, and, and to Italy. But uh, like... And anyone who's seen the films on, on Maradona, like, will know that he. he I mean, he, he was revered anyway before the '86 World Cup. But what? Yeah. How did it change then after the World Cup in '86? Was it? Was it almost? It's almost godlike after that. And I'm sure the the, well, the reception around Maradona changed before and after that World Cup. Well, well Shane, it, it was godlike. Now, let me just tell you this: one of the things that uh, you know, in in the build up to that. Uh, uh, that, that that game against Fiorentina, the day they won the first title, uh, there was a, a, a prayer that appeared on uh, in shops all around uh, uh, Naples, and it said, uh, "It basically, I mean, it's, it's blasphemous, but I mean, I apologise to anybody who got offended by it." But he said, "Our, our Maradona, who takes the field, uh, we have hallowed thy name. Thy kingdom is Napoli. Lead us not into disappointment." But deliver unto us the title. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I mean, he was, uh, yeah, he was a, a godlike figure to uh, I think, uh, a Pope, lot of the, Italian, the Neapolitan fan. Pope John Paul II was the Pope at that point, wasn't he? So he was, he was a football man. I think he, he was a goalkeeper when he was younger. So he, he, I don't think he would have called a blasphemous. I think he would have understood Paddy, potentially. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. I hope I hope so. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, the great thing about this era is that it's not just defined by Maradona, even though he was the preeminent footballer in the world and the best footballer in the world, because at the same time, Silvio Berlusconi decides to turn AC Milan into the greatest football team in the world. And he's looking at the great young uh, Dutch footballers who are coming through. We talked a little bit about um, Joey Malone playing against Marco van Basten for Ajax he signs for AC Milan at the same time basically the Italian league is the best league most important football league in the world at this point and all of the best players are gravitating towards two or three teams at those um, at, at that time absolutely you had uh, you had above all you had uh, Maradona you had Platini at Juventus you had the Dutch lads uh, Van Basten and Hull going to uh, AC Milan you had Zico uh, Zico played for Udinese believe it or not so you had you had in those days it was the Hollywood of football, and it was you know it was what the Premiership is today. You know, uh, everybody wanted to play there, but uh, that um, uh, go through. We've got two games here, two Napoli games. That April '87, the day they won the title, they beat Fiorentina, uh, and uh, you know it wasn't I, 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 the 
excitement around the game was incredible. I don't remember the game as being a great game, uh, but um, you know, Napoli scored a, the Carnival scored a goal early on for Napoli, uh, and then a twenty-year-old who I'd never seen before, who most of us hadn't seen before, called Roberto Baggio, steps up for Fiorentina, and he scored a brilliant free-kick goal. And you thought, Jesus, that can play a bit. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, that was his first ever Serie A goal. It was a great day to score your first ever Serie A goal. Um, but after after but the, sec- the second half of the game, so it was one, one and a half time, the second half of that game uh, was basically uh, um, Fiorentina didn't, it meant nothing to Fiorentina at that point, whether they basically won, lost or drew because they were in mid-table. And um, basically, both sides uh, laid down their swords in the second half, and they we waited we waited for the game to get to an end, for the uh, the whole stadium to go absolutely mad. And the person who went maddest was Maradona because he um, he didn't come off the pitch for a long time. And I remember watching him, you know, very very closely. He walked to he walked right around the pitch, and he stopped about four or five times. Uh, uh, in different points and stood there with his chest stuck out, arms wide open, blowing kisses uh, to the, the Napoli fans. Uh, and, you know, uh, after the game, I remember he, he said, well, you know, this is different. This is better than the World Cup I won in Mexico last year because um, that was in Mexico. Uh, here, you know, I'm uh, all my family's here. Uh, the city of Naples are with me because I consider myself a son of Naples. Uh, and uh, you know that was that was absolutely true. I mean, he was a son of Napoli. There's no question of that. They, then, 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 then a year later, Jerry, we had we had Napoli again in the the centre of what might be a passing on the baton because that AC Milan side that was uh, uh, the had been bought over in 1986 um, by the media tycoon Silvio Berlusconi. Uh, their, uh, that investment was being realised, and they came down to uh, they came down to Napoli. They needed to uh, w- Napoli were still leading the uh, lead on the day they met, but it was like well, I think the third last day of the season. Uh, but um, you know they were a very very good team. Um, Virdas got a goal for them very early on. And then Maradona scored a fantastic free kick to make it 1-1. Uh, and then we got into the second half and we had two sort of similar moments. Hullet uh, uh, twice uh, picked up balls just inside his own half and made made one of those great runs of his. Uh, the first time he, he set it up for Rodriguez to make it uh, 2-1. And then the second time he set it up for Van Basten. And the interesting thing about that was that Van Basten at that point was relatively unknown, in it, even in Italy, even though he'd been here for the whole season, because he had um, injury problems. Uh, and so it, it was a, like an amazing moment for him to come on and score the goal in a game like that. Um, and, and, and a small thing I remember after the game, we're talking about 1988 now, and uh, there were no mobile phones and there were... Uh, there was no satellite TV. It was a different world. And I was in the press room and all the little phone booths filing my copy. And who was in the booth beside me? Uh, but Adriano Galliani, the uh, managing director of Milan, 
a longtime friend and an uh, ally of Sylvia Berlusconi. And I heard Galliani, <laughs> delight to hear this. I heard Galliani saying, "Ah, uh, can I speak to Dr. Berlusconi?" And um, there's a bit of a pause, and then he says, "Silvio, è andato bene, molto molto bene." Wow, it it, it it went well, Silvio, <laughs> which it certainly had done. It had gone very well. <laughs> so even Silvio Berlusconi, owner of like satellite TV companies, couldn't get a a, a dodgy feed no. of the game. Uh, no, in those days, in those days, wow. uh, th- there was no there was no live coverage. Wow, that's um, like, and this is obviously just months before uh, Van Basten announces himself as the best centre forward in the world at the Euros yeah. by like yeah. you know absolutely sensational goal in the final that we all remember. Yeah. Um, if, yeah. memory, if memory serves, it's Arnold Muren who crosses that over. Who, that's correct. Yeah, Joey Malone was talking week. about. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a fantastic goal. It's almost like goal. we planned this show today for <laughs> for these bits all to follow. Um, that rivalry between those two clubs is quite explosive. There's also a memory in my mind of like uh, at least two of the three Dutch players getting sent off and taking their tops off and throwing them into the crowd. Is that like the 1990 season where there's kind of where yeah. Naples the the, the yeah. Napoli team drew fire from AC Milan and drove them on to the greatness that we then saw at European level. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there's also the 1990 season was controversial because uh, Napoli uh, picked up a point for having one of their players. They they lost a game, I think it was against Atalanta, and they picked up then a point because uh, the Football Federation intervened and and, and gave them... uh, uh, a point for uh, the fact that one of their players, De Napoli, it was Fernando De Napoli, been hit by a coin thrown by a fan, and so they changed the result of the match. And at that point obviously made the difference. Yeah, uh, and, uh, and the Milan fans always said it was, you know, Napoli hadn't deserved to win the title that year. Um, I can see why that would uh, lead to certain uh, <laughs> bad words. Certainly did, yeah. Um, and curiously enough, Jared, it's worth worth pointing out that. Uh, that rivalry is still very strong. The two strongest sides in uh, Italy at the moment are, are, are Napoli and, and AC Milan. And, you know, both have done very well in the Champions League again this week. Napoli are sensational to watch at the moment. Like one Napoli of the, are sensational. Yeah, one of the most exciting teams in world football at the moment. Uh, let's move on to that night in Turin where I think Roy Keane's yeah. legacy in world football terms is sealed like we obviously from an Ireland perspective think of the World Cup qualifying campaign his games against yeah. Portugal and Holland in particular but for Manchester United yeah. fans this is the, the high watermark yeah 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 can, and can I tell you something again on a personal note I had you know I've been here since 86 I'd never seen Roy Keane play uh, it was the first time one of the few times actually was at the at the stadium uh, to see him play but you know that was a strange a remarkable game because few teams come to uh Turin, uh, go ten, go two goals down after ten minutes, and live to tell the tale. But there was a funny thing about that game because even when they were two nil down, you had the suspicion, uh, you had the feeling that they weren't out of it. Um, and you know, sure enough, they, they had, uh, you know, they they, uh, they played some very very good football, uh, and you know, uh, by halftime it was two two. Uh, was it York, York, and uh, who was scoring? Scored the other Cole, I think. Yeah, Andy Cole. Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, but I mean, um, it, the the man who's who put put them back in the game was Keane. It was his. He he scored the first goal. That's right. Yeah, a, a header from a corner, uh, and Keane was involved in everything uh, United were doing. I mean, he was uh, he absolutely in control of the midfield. He was absolutely. Um, uh, he was very good in defence. Uh, I mean, he was a terrific player. I don't have to tell you that. But uh, what what uh, I remember was that from the moment he scored that headed goal, you had the feeling that Juventus were worried about him, <laughs> and uh, they, they they weren't uh, they weren't comfortable. So there was a sort of inevitability about it uh, uh, when um, you know the the, the uh, got uh, got their winner. Uh, in, in the second half, um, five But what the point the point about two two courses I remember was that the, the away goals rule meant that they were already in the final at two two United. The, the, so, like the Paddy, the commentary I guess from Clive Tilsey is famous for a lot of people who were watching on TV. Um, but then Roy Keane with the captain's goal for Manchester United, and I think it was full speed ahead Barcelona when Cole scored the. The last one, um, but like his dominance was obviously apparent. If you're there on the night, like what what was the atmosphere like? There was a decent travelling United support, judging by the the videos watching it back. But and there was there was no, it was a great it was a great atmosphere, no question of that. Uh, and you know the United uh, uh, silenced the uh, Turin fans, the Juventus fans to a certain extent. I I remember one thing I remember about afterwards was that um, uh, when the players came out. Um, we got to talk to Roy Keane, and I remember, uh, you know, he. You remember he got a, a second yellow card, and he had to miss the final against Bayern Munich. And um, you know, anybody in that situation, you could, uh, you would, wouldn't have been surprised if they'd said some unpleasant things about the referee, or they had expressed their huge disappointment in not being at the final. For God's sake, I mean, it would sicken you. But. Um, King was very self-controlled. Um, he was very, and he was very fair. And he said, you know, the, the, I remember saying, ah, the great thing is, okay, you know, uh, um, I knew I knew this could happen coming here. Um, I've said it before, I'm not going to tip tiptoe through matches, <laughs> which was a, a great version of Roy Keane. He's never tipped through, <laughs> tiptoed through any match in his life. Or anything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he said, um, I remember he said, I knew, I knew before the game that a booking could rule me out. Uh, but I can't do anything about that now. And it doesn't matter. I'm delighted that we're the, the clubs in the, the final in uh, Barcelona against Munich. Can I just point out as well to everybody the the midfield that he was up against was uh, Captain Antonio Conte, that Antonio Conte, yeah. Uh, yeah. Didier Deschamps, Edgar Davids, Angelo Delivio, and Zidane dropping in to pick up balls deep. Yeah, uh, behind yeah. behind Pippo and Zaghi. So like decent look. Yeah, no, it was a fantastic Juventus team. It was a good team. Uh, so you had to be you had to be on your a, a game to uh, defeat them. I think one of the things that. Um, uh, I think the pace of that Man United side sort of caught a, a number of the your European rivals off guard that season. You know, they played with a lot of pace. They knocked it around very fast, and yeah. uh, uh, and um, you know, uh, York in particular front gave Juventus a lot of problems that night. Yeah, Keane's athleticism was explosive in a way that maybe 
uh, people don't really notice because he gets the ball from the centre back, he passes it to the right back, he gets it back and he passes it again. But it was explosive in over 10, 15 yards, which gave him, when he was running on, when he was running past a centre midfielder or past a defender, all of a sudden, like, hang on, how did he get there? So, uh, Paddy, I've got to move on. Your last two selections are both international football. The first yeah. one is June 2000 at the Euros and it's France versus Spain. Uh, I don't remember this too much. What, what was the story here? <laughs> well, no, I, the, one of the reasons I stuck this one in is because uh, I was thinking a lot of people wouldn't have seen it, but I was lucky to be at the game. It was an absolutely fantastic game. France uh, beat Spain 2-1. It was one of those games in which you just couldn't believe it, the quality of the football you were watching. Um, you know, in particular, uh, Zidane again for, you know, it was the... Uh, the great French side of the day, uh, and uh, you know Zidane opened the opened the uh, festivities with a fantastic free kick goal. Um, Mendieta then got a penalty for uh, Spain. It was, uh, and then Jorkov got a fantastic goal just before half time. Jorkov, um, who was playing for Inter at the time, and. Uh, Throughout then the second half, it it, it it remained that way until we were actually in injury time when Spain got a penalty and they could have uh, taken the game into uh, extra time. Uh, Raul took the penalty and he blasted high over the bar and uh, France had gone through. But uh, the reason I picked that game was um, the drama the drama of 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 that missing that penalty at the end, the excitement of it. But just the quality of the game. And I remember talking to Mark Lawrence afterwards, um, and uh, I said to Mark, uh, God, Mark, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know much about football, but that looked to me like an absolutely fantastic game. And he said, oh, God, that was a tasty one. That was a very, very good game. Uh, I mean, it, 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 there was a lot of quality there. But, you know, if you look at the... Uh, uh, the um, the film of the game now. Uh, one one thing. <laughs> well, I'm sure will make Manchester City fans uh, amused. You see uh, a, a certain Guardioli playing and playing really well in that game. But at a certain point in the second half, he whacks down Jorkev and gets himself a yellow card because Jorkev was in very good form and he had to be taken down. So, uh, old Pep Guardiola, the great uh, lover of the the beautiful game. He was also capable of knocking a man down if he had to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do whatever it takes. That's, of course, the same Spain team who knocked us out of the World Cup two years later. So I'd say people yeah, will yeah. be pretty familiar with it. That's quarterfinal stage of, of uh, Euro 2000. That's that France team kind of expressing themselves, having unburdened the whole country by winning the World Cup in 98. And then um, they go on. That's the golden goal final, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I was at that too, obviously. And... I definitely remember thinking that night that this golden goal is not a good thing, you know, because that that game, uh, Italy had a won and should have uh, held on to win. And very untypically for an Italian side, they, they conceded a leg equaliser to France. And from that moment on, we thought that Spain were, or that uh, France would win. But um, your last one. I remember, I remember on. the, sick, the sickening feeling we got on that uh, uh, the winning goal went in 
not I mean not just Italians got the sickening feeling, but there's a feeling of it's not it doesn't seem right that the yeah, match yeah. is not over just because that goal has gone in, you know? Yeah, it was the the uh, the virus of Americanization had infected football. Yeah. And we're like, Oh, we have to do this, that's what they do in American football and everything's great there. It's like well yeah, yeah. no, no, yeah, yeah. it's not. Uh, th- this last one, um I think I've only met you in person once, Paddy, and it was the summer of two thousand and six. Um I was touring around Germany for the World Cup and it was kind of the, the end of the group stages and we met you and you were like I think this Italian team there's something about them I was like no you, you've just been living there too long you've got um, Stockholm Syndrome and you were 100% correct there was something brewing from that Italian team over the course of the tournament and I think it finds full expression in your final selection here which is the World Cup semi-final against Germany yeah, yeah no it's a great game but let, let me tell you one thing Jer about my prediction I, I wrote a book that year Forza Italia about Italian football, and it came out just before the World Cup. And in my last, uh, in the original version of it, my last chapter, I imagined the World Cup final, and I had France playing, I had uh, France playing Italy in that World Cup final in my book, right? right? And my editor said to me, oh, you're in Egypt, you can't do that. Your France and Italy won't get to the final. For God's sake, you can't. Right? We look stupid. And I, I thought about it and thought, well, he's probably right. Of course, they won't get the final, but... Um, I did think Italy would do quite well. Uh, <laughs> however, he took it out when I wrote uh, uh, a less uh, uh, outrageous uh, uh, final. But th- that night, though, at the uh, uh, Westfalen Stadium in uh, Dortmund, you know, was um, I know I don't know how many of our listeners have been to the Westfalen Stadium, but it's one of the great uh, stadia of European football and German football. It's a, a tremendously big stadium, tremendous atmosphere. Uh, and watching Germany playing a World Cup semi-final there, it, you know, Italy were up against it. It was a serious battle. Um, and it was very, very tough. Uh, and that team, uh, that Italian team, surprise, surprise, um, you know, uh, were, uh, they got through it with their determination and, and above all their defensive uh, quality. Now, if you want to pick out an outstanding player that night, I'd pick out uh, Cannavaro. Uh, their captain, their central defender. Uh, but, you know, one of the things I'd forgotten about, I mean, uh, uh, that game, so I looked at the highlights of the match last night and forgotten that both the goals in that game uh, came uh, in the last two minutes of extra time. Yeah. It's, it's Grosso. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, we were we were all getting ready for the penalty, weren't we? <laughs> and Grosso's, it's probably one of the, the best celebration you'll ever see in person, Paddy, as well. The famous uh, run down the sideline with the hands outstretched, the most Italian of celebrations, and he's in tears <laughs> as well. It was unbelievable. It was fantastic. But you know, right? I, 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 there's another thing, reason why I um, I, I love that because the, the that match, um, the. Uh, second goal, the goal in the 120th minute was Del Piero. And that came from a, a, a German corner. Canavara burst out of the area and knocked it forward. Uh, Totti picked it up. He knocks it right to Giardino. And Giardino then plays a really clever sort of no-look uh, pass to uh, Del Piero, who curls it beautifully past uh, Lehman, I think was the goalkeeper, uh, for the second goal. And um, what I remember about that was, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, the, the disappointment of Euro 2000 when France had beaten um, Italy, uh, one of the disappointments of that game was that Del Piero in the second half of that match had the chance to wrap it up for Italy uh, and he'd missed it. 
and he got slagged and criticised and people are always reminding him how he didn't win the European Champions at Forest in 2000, etc, etc. Well, he laid that ghost that, that night in Dortmund because he sealed up the World Cup for them. Yeah, and uh, what, a, what a final that was with um, Zidane and the headboard as well. My recollection of the night specifically wasn't, you, you picked a defender and a, um, a forward. The two midfielders that uh, Andrea Pirlo and Gennaro Gattuso oh, yeah. I, was, I think it's the greatest game Gattuso's ever played he was sensational but Pirlo there was just this mag- magnetism that they were able to control the ball and take the sting out of the Germans and the German crowd who kind of were not fully behind the team at the start of the tournament and then all of a sudden had yeah. kind of erupted they got, and, they got behind them yeah yeah yeah, and, um, and they didn't expect to go that far and here all of a sudden they were on the brink and it was like oh yeah. typical Germans but yeah, yeah. The, the whole thing was just taken out of them by the two geniuses in midfield as well. So um, that that's also on my list of uh, you had to be there. It's um, all-time great well, sporting. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Pirlo, I mean, I'm glad they mentioned Pirlo because he was like uh, you know, the great genius of that Marcello Lippi side. He was a wonderful player. Uh, and, and uh, you know, he, he did... Uh, do you remember his uh, penalty against England in the <laughs> European Championship? <laughs> Two years later, no. <laughs> Paddy, we're unfortunately out of time, but that was an absolutely brilliant episode of You Had to Be There. Thanks so much for sharing those with us. You're most welcome. Just so unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. You had to be there. Stick that sailing on your bucket list. Really? Yeah. So it, at the international games, they closed the terrace, so it's actually smaller capacity, but right. the atmosphere was still unbelievable. Jeez. Like it was this the all best time. Stadium. Yeah, that was the that was the best. What city is that? Sports event. Munich, Dortmund. Dortmund. Sorry, yeah. Raj. Yeah, of course. That I've, I've ever been in uh, or at. Um, right. OTBAM brought to you by Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. You can sign up or donate now at movember.com. OTBAM. With Gillette, in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mode.